This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. You'll be speaking with David as he produces the show, answers your calls. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So we've mentioned this in the past, but I want to offer uh, safe travels and good luck to a couple of local curlers. Off to Halifax this weekend to participate in a curling event before they head off to the 2012. 24 Youth Olympic Games in Gangwon, South Korea, beginning on January the 19th, running through uh, February the 1st. And the mixed doubles competitors representing Canada, a couple of locals, Cali Lock, Conception Bay South, and Simon Perry of Portugal Cove. They earned the right to represent Canada by winning the best of seven mixed doubles series at the start of the curling season. Of course, they've been training hard and preparing to put the Maple Leaf on the front of their uniforms and compete in the Youth Olympics. Congratulations. Good luck. Go get them. All right, the Growlers back in action tomorrow night. The Adirondack Thunder come to town for a three-game set. Then there's a break next week for the ECHL All-Star Game, and then they're back on the road for a bit, but the Growlers back in action tomorrow night. A couple of quick sports notes. So I always love it when I see the Gretzky's and the Messiers of the world in the notes. 1989, on this date, L.A. King Center, Wayne Gretzky became the NHL's all-time leading scorer in combined regular season and playoff points. He had four assists and a 5-4 home win over the Edmonton Oilers, bringing his total to 2,011 points, one more than Gordie Howe. On the same date, 1998, then played for the Vancouver Canucks, veteran center Mark Messier became the sixth player in NHL history to record 1,000 assists in a 2-2 tie against the Panthers at GM Place. And Dave Williams will love this one. On this date, and this is a really famous play. On this date, 1982, in the NFC Championship at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, the Niners beat the Cowboys 28-27. The catch, one of the most iconic moments in NFL history. Dwight Clark makes a fingertip catch for a, t- for a TD pass from Joe Montana with 58 seconds remaining. The Niners go on to win the Super Bowl. The catch. Pretty cool. All right. So this one here is based on a call that we had yesterday. And the lady called talking about the fact that her mother had passed away after a very short stay in a personal care home. When their paramedics arrived, they were quite dismayed that there hadn't been CPR performed on her mother. And she went on to say during the call that, you know, you never know. Had there been CPR performed, maybe her mother would still be here today. We don't know what the case may be, but... The most concerning part of the call beyond the poor lady having lost her mother and her condolences is that there's no requirement for the personal care attendants in that setting to have basic first aid, including first, uh, including CPR. That's just absolute madness. Like, if you go through CNA and get a formal diploma as a personal care attendant, you can't graduate without having basic first aid, including CPR. How can it possibly be that it's based on the number of workers on site versus how many students and or residents in a personal care home that would be mandatory first aid brought to bear? This is a very simple fix on behalf of the provincial government. Even, I mean, it's easy enough to get a first aid uh, training course offered. So regardless if it's privately owned or publicly owned, there is no reason under the sun why the PCAs, the personal care attendants, are not required by law to be hired to have first aid. Now, I'm sure some of these operators will say it's hard enough to get them in the first place. So to have a requirement, an additional requirement like first aid might be cumbersome. Well, in essence, not to be saucy, but too bad. 
It's just so critically important. I mean, like we mentioned yesterday on the show, when I was working in the hotel industry, I had to have first aid training. So working in the hotel business versus working with residents who may be elderly, frail, the possibility or the likelihood to possibly have to administer CPR. So for the province, hopefully someone hears that call and thinks, you know, the occupational health and safety regulations and rules really aren't standing up to some of the realities. So mandatory first aid training, please, for everyone working in these settings. Why not? It just makes sense. And of course, we're still waiting for some of the committee work to be completed, talk about the review of the province's personal care homes and long-term care facilities, staffing levels, and a variety of the stories we've heard regarding violence and what have you. So we'll see what comes there. One of the big ones on that agenda will have to be what the province needs to do to ensure we don't separate couples who've been together for decades, have differing needs, medically speaking, and are consequently separated while entering long-term care. That can't be. And of course, at the same time, we're also entertaining conversations about what needs to be done regarding home care support to allow people to age in place, as they call it, and then add to it in the housing complications. Seniors, apparently so says the Canadian Mortgage Corporation, seniors are staying in their home longer anyway these days and selling much, much later in life, which of course is part of the churn in housing, which is, you know, one of the moving parts where we see the country where we are on that front. On top of having your own home is the ability to get it insured. For the second straight year last year, the, the insurance industry in this country paid out over $3 billion in insurance claims associated with extreme weather. It's the second year in a row over $3 billion. Four of the most five expensive insurance claims years have happened in this decade, in the past decade. The one uh, more expensive year was in 1998 when that Quebec ice storm, which people remember. I remember because my wife and then baby Nicholas were in Cornwall in the Ottawa Valley, and they were hit with that ice storm as well. So... You know, as a result, and it's not just because of one type of event. I mean, we're talking about floods and wildfires, hailstorms, hurricanes. They're happening from coast to coast to coast. They seem to be escalating our frequency and severity. As a result of the insurance claims, now people are having a hard time possibly finding home insurance. So there's some 1.5 million homes in the country that are currently uninsured. I mean, how unsettling must it be to know that at any time something can go wrong and you would lean on your insurance provider, open up a claim, and get some coverage done for repairs, however extensive they may be. 1.5 million homes. So now people are having to consider where they can build or rebuild. It brings to mind post-tropical storm Fiona making landfall in this province, what was it, in September September 24th, 2022. So especially if you're living in that area, and it's not just in Puerto Basque, of course, Fiona didn't know where she was coming uh, uh, on shore, so there was lots of devastation, likely the most devastating storm in the province's history. I wonder what the insurance implications would be for folks who are choosing to rebuild close by or exactly where their homes were devastated by Fiona. But imagine $3 billion for a second year in a row insurance claims payout for the five most expensive years in the past 10 years uh, with the exception of the Quebec ice storm in 1998. Anyway, that's really quite something. How many homes are built on floodplains? Oh, it just pops in my head. I wonder whether there are any insurance complications for the new mental health and addictions facility being built at the health sciences complex, a really busy congested area to begin with, and of course built on a noted floodplain that just popped in my head. Anyway, so that's an issue regarding insurance. We'd certainly like to hear from folks on the west coast if you were indeed impacted by fiona rebuild the mood the temperature in the communities and maybe if there's insurance complications okay so we found out this week that the province in an effort to try to find transition housing for homeless people in the province and of course there was an announcement associated with eight new affordable rental units down in the pleasantville area there's going to be 40 in total the next 32 beginning construction in march 
But just to talk about how long it takes to identify, to fund, to engineer, design, and build a home, the completion of those next 32 units, not till 2026. Right, so that's a really long uh, gap between knowing that there's a policy in place and funding available before they finally get built. In addition, some of the concerns being brought forward regarding the province's decision to lease the Comfort Hotel on Airport Road and the 140 rooms to offer transitional housing. Of course, it's been welcomed in many corners because we have to do something. But there's still some big questions. It's good that there's going to be wraparound services on site. You know, NL Health Services employees will be there to deal with your overall health, mental health and addictions concerns, three meals a day at the restaurant inside the Comfort Inn or the Comfort Hotel. It's going to be closed on February 15th and welcoming the new residents sometime in March, we're told. So $7 million per year, $20 million over the course of three years. Let's look around the country. So there's different strategies in different provinces based on severity and need. In the province of British Columbia back in 2020, the provincial government not leased a comfort hotel. It's interesting that it's also in the comfort brand. They bought it. So at the end of this three-year lease, what becomes of the province's strategy? Because we will not have the opportunity to have built all the units required to house whoever. People who are here, newcomers to the province. So there's a huge difference in that strategy. So the province of British Columbia will own that asset. They bought it for some $18.5 million, so about $2.5 million less than the three-year lease in this province. So there's the big question. What is the plan three years from now? That's a massive difference in strategy. Now, it's not to say that the government could have bought this particular hotel uh, from Judy Sparks Canoe, but... Was that even part of the conversation? Also, we're going to speak with Doug Posser from End Homelessness of St. John's this morning. He says it checks all the boxes. He calls it transformative and a game changer. Fair enough. He's the man on the ground working on this file every single day. But inside that task force, and I mean, they're not the people responsible for this particular lease arrangement between Clayton Hospitality and the provincial government, but you just wonder what they might know about the long-term strategy because people are scrambling. You know, we heard from Minister Abbott prior to the Christmas holiday saying, you know, we're going to try to empty out Tent City, find a place, whether it be in shelters, hotels, or other potential transition options, like the Comfort Inn, by Christmas. I'm not sure how Christmas was selected as a date. It's pretty arbitrary stuff. But just think about that difference in long-term strategy. The B.C. government bought it. Now, we don't know if there was a hotel for sale here. Then there's also questions about location. Because like everything in this world, you want to have access to amenities, whether it be grocery stores and uh, pharmacies and transit. So we'll ask Mr. Poston about all of these particular issues. Now, I guess there's nothing going to be 100% ideal and every box checked with a heavy drawn black X But Just think about those differences between what we're doing here and what they're doing there. All right, and talk about energy. Lots of talk on that front. So it's a decade ago that we went through Dark NL. Some customers of Newfoundland Power and Newfoundland Labrador Hydro without power for upwards of a week. It was devastating for many individuals, their families and their homes, and of course it became a political hot potato. The lack of want or willingness to uh, declare it a crisis by then Premier Dunderdale, which is kind of funny stuff, you know, we need so badly to have a label attached to one issue or another, one crisis or another, but she wouldn't call it a crisis, and consequently it really hurt her politically, which is a strange thing to hurt someone politically. Anyway. So about a decade later, here we are, looking at some of the forecast needs for supply and demand in the next decade or two, and what's going to be done about it. 
and they're evaluating. People have latched onto the 150 megawatt generator, diesel fire generator, to be located at Holyrood, but that was only a recommendation from Hatch Consulting, not where Newfoundland Labrador Hydro has actually landed. So we'll see. And inside of that, I know that I might be one of the few who is absolutely fascinated with the ongoing discussion regarding 2041. And yes, revisiting the old then Premier Roger Grimes plan to develop Gull Island. I mean, it's really quite interesting when you look at what was the consensus and the makeup of that particular deal and what would have meant to avoid the issue regarding Muskrat Falls. Because, of course, when the Liberals lost government, the following year, and then Premier Danny Williams said, we're not going to do anything that r- relates or does business with the province of Quebec. But of course, Quebec as the boogeyman has caused as much harm as has ever helped. It's a nice, convenient political rally cry. But anyway, you want to tackle that stuff, we can do it. And now curiously, sticking with the energy business, the province, based on recommendations from the Green Report, the Premier's economic recovery team, and I would imagine it's also addressed quite succinctly inside the Can't Have a Look at It Rothschild Report, now looking at the potential to sell off our oil assets. It was always going to be a potential, and it doesn't mean that because they're now out there testing the market for what the value may indeed be, but we're looking at selling them off. I'm not going to be surprised. Now, last year brought in some $200 million worth of revenues, and the last valuation I saw, if I remember correctly, and it seems quite low, at some $700 million. Now, these, of course, would be suitors internationally. And there's always been a legitimate debate about whether or not equity was a wise thing to do in the first place. But we've done it in three of the fields offshore. And the province continues to say they're interested in an equity stake if Beta Nord ever gets developed. So, uh, pardon me, Minister Parsons says in the next six months or so, we'll have a better idea about what that's going to look like, what value it might bring to bear. Also inside owning an equity stake on top of royalties is an additional revenue side. Of course it is. But we're also selling an equity stake that involves that commitment, percentage-wise, of decommissioning. We've never been through a decommissioning of an offshore oil field. Of course, Hibernia being number one, still producing oil, well in excess of a billion barrels at this point, but we've never been involved in having to pony up to decommission, whether it be at 4.9%, and or people talk like 10% possibility at Beta Nord, but province having a look around, and of course, this is the first real issue, one of the big line items that was broached in the PERC report, and likely in the Rothschild report, about, you know, privatizing, selling off assets, and cuts to public spending, and all the rest of it, and you remember the ins and the outs. All right, a couple of quick ones before we get to you, a couple of important ones. So, with the Canada Dental Plan, the Dental Association here has some concerns. They're talking about the fact that they see, as, the, as it rolls out in full, some additional 97,000 people could be eligible in the first phase of the rollout by the end of 2024. So apparently, we don't talk about shortages inside the dental world because, of course, they're individual businesses. They're, you know, they're a private offering inside of healthcare. So apparently, there's a shortage of dental assistants and hygienists right around the country. Ottawa looks like they might be willing to do something to help on that front, but he says, and this comes from the president of the NL Dental Association, Dr. Shane Roberts, he says within the next decade, they expect up to 50% of senior dentists in the province will retire, and that's why the Dental Association has been working on improving and recruiting and retaining oral health care providers in the province. So we've seen all the different pots of money and incentives brought to bear for health care professionals, but none of that is ever focusing on dentists. And now with the Canada Dental Plan, there's going to be enormous pressure. 
in addition to that pressure of the number of uh, hygienists and oral health, oral care health professionals and the, the lack of them in the country, is the administrative burden that they're also talking about at the NLDA. They say that Health Canada is trying to mimic another program that's already in place. It's called the Non-Insured Health Benefits for First Nations Inuit. It comes, so says the NLDA, with significant, significant administrative burden and its own fee schedule, not once in by dentists themselves. So they're being asked to subsidize this particular program and consequently the same administrative burden and subsidizing of the Canada Dental Plan. So again, things look good, sound good, but it's all of the boring moving part details that have to be given strict attention to as opposed to simply saying, here's what we're going to do, here's how much it's going to cost, but can it absolutely and actually be absorbed by the healthcare professionals required? Interesting, we can take it on. Last one before we get to you. I don't generally read emails in full on the program, but this one I think will represent a variety, thousands of business owners across the country. Beginning on January 18th of 2024, our country is going to see a large number of small businesses shuttered and closed, leaving many in dire financial straits or worse, bankrupt. It will also leave many people unemployed, especially in the tourism and food service sector, which employs a large number of our population here in Newfoundland. And what are we talking about here? It's the SEBA. It's the loan program that the, pro- the uh, federal government brought out. So the email goes on to say, when the pandemic hit in 2020, our federal government gave loans to small business, SEBA, to help alleviate the financial stress of avoidable expenses, such as rent payments, property taxes, utility bills during the lockdowns, and strict government regulations. While we must pay back these loans immediately, the question for the federal government's judgment, how will they collect their money when the business default or go bankrupt? Wouldn't it be better to work with us, apply longer terms, and continue 0% interest rates? It seems that the federal government holds large corporations in favor while the small businesses can kick rocks. When you take a drive through your town in the next few months and see some of the places you used to love to peruse and then find them shuttered and empty and wonder why, please keep these easily found facts in mind. Remember that when you vote in the federal election, Air Canada's $6 billion bailout and the financial stimulus is equivalent to two-thirds of the company's value, while in return the government only gets 6% of the company's shares. Bell, Rogers, Telus took advantage of the Canadian emergency wage subsidy to the tune of $214 million, all the while laying off employees, reducing services, pumping up executive compensation, and issuing juicy dividends. Not wrong. Some companies that absolutely were at little to zero risk based on the pandemic, availing that wage subsidy is a conversation that has never gotten enough traction. That's me adding in. The oil and gas sector received $18 billion of financial supports in 2020 and do each and every year, even though they are decreasing, from various levels of government in the form of subsidies, tax breaks, and other forms of direct and indirect financial stimulus. Now, oil and gas subsidies and breaks are decreasing in this country. So this is a federal government issue. You know, where's the province's voice on this? Because these business owners are not wrong. What's the economic upside here? The government's unwillingness to come out with these loans and unwilling to work with these business owners? What's the economic ruin going to be if how many of these businesses shut their door? because they have to pay back that loan immediately and we've lost a portion of the forgivable loan as a result. It is madness. The government was very quick to offer all kinds of different support programs. Now, it came quickly without the required oversight and monitoring and some of the close adherence to who was actually eligible, whether it be for the emergency response benefit and or for the wage subsidy and for SEBA and the complications down the road. So for business owners, if you'd like to call and talk about your particular circumstance, whether it be in the restaurant industry, like Restaurants Canada says, there's some 4,000 restaurants across the country that 
that if and when they have to repay in full next, uh, next week on the 18th of January, that might be the end of the road. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Doug Parson, we mentioned him in the preamble. He's the executive director at End Homelessness St. John's. He'll kick it off. And then John wants to talk about the same issue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the executive director of End Homelessness St. John's. That's our friend Doug Parson. Good morning, Doug. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you. Hope you had a great Christmas. I had a perfectly quiet Christmas, exactly what I needed. <laughs> Hopefully you had a good one as well. Yeah, thanks. Uh, let's start, you know, there's a bunch of housing-related matters, but let's start with the the lease of the Comfort Inn and the 140 rooms and the wraparound services. You've called it a transformative. you called it a game-changer. I think it's fair to say you think it checks all the boxes. Just speak to the overall concept of what you think is happening here and what the benefit will be, and then we'll get a little further into the weeds. Yeah, yeah, great. It's uh, and thanks for having me and inviting me to to talk about it. I think it's it's important to get the the message and some of the details out that are are hard to parse out in a press release. So, um, yeah, so there's the the, the new hotel uh, opportunity in front of us. The, the facility itself is 140 rooms. <clears throat> what is I think transformative here, and, and I know you referenced this in some of the preamble around other provinces and communities, you know, taking on a hotel. We're not just looking at taking on the hotel. We're looking at the, the intentional integration of, of acute health services, so that mental health uh, and addiction supports, those uh, harm reduction approaches, trauma-informed approaches um, that, that assist people with those health needs and combining that with, with housing support so folks can. Um, and, and typically, we haven't ironed out all the details, but typically folks who have had a difficult time or more challenging time to, to resolve their homelessness uh, experience of homelessness so that they can get those additional supports and get the, the everything lined up so when they can move into you know their own housing unit um, they're they're equipped with the health and the housing supports to be successful in that transition so that that to me is the transformation here is it's not just another shelter we're drawing on folks who are experiencing homelessness who may be in shelter but we're really putting those intentional efforts on the health and the housing support side so that folks when they when they leave that facility, they have the opportunity to be successful in their housing arrangements. Yeah. Now, with, in context with uh, the BC government's move to actually purchase the hotel, we don't know if there was a hotel for sale here. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to insinuate, well, we did something stupid and we could have done something better because I don't know what the circumstances were. But in BC, it's operated by a group called Our Place Society. They actually have the wraparound supports, meals, healthcare services, storage for personal belongings, addictions treatment, harm reduction, mental health uh, attention. So they've done both the same way, but just a different way, you know, looking at leasing versus buying. And again, I don't know if that was actually an option here. When we talk about checking all the boxes you know what kind of attention to your knowledge was given to things like proximity to a pharmacy a grocery store public transit and what have you because so those are some of the things that maybe not in close proximity to the comfort inn on airport road versus some other locations which you know we talk about walkable cities and people will get caught up in 15 minute cities or what have you but inside that world of public transit pharmacies and grocery stores any concerns on that front uh, yeah, that's always a consideration. Uh, definitely, I know the transportation side of things, and we've we've been having conversations, and I know the province has been having conversations with the city and Metro Bus on how do we expand uh, services to that location in that neighborhood. So that that is certainly top of mind for us. 
Um, but in terms of the, the access to things like pharmacy, I'll just point out that like from a harm reduction perspective, the, the harm reduction team that, uh, you know, that we've, we've worked with health to build through COVID and will expand through this effort um, incorporates pharmacy into it. So the, the hope here is that there's going to be, you know, there's that, there's that acute health wing um, of the hotel, which will support folks who, who would otherwise be discharged from, say, an emergency room or a hospital into homelessness. So it can support those folks, uh, but also provide additional supports to the folks staying there as well. So they were still in the design phase of that, but the, you know, in terms of the model, pharmacy is absolutely being uh, built into that approach. So, yeah, we want to minimize those kinds of challenges that folks may face, especially in those moments of crisis or times of need when they might need something like access to a trans uh, bus or or a pharmacy. So those are those are intentionally being built in, and those conversations with Metro Bus are certainly happening. When we talk about who might be eligible to stay in one of these 140 transition rooms, do you have any idea what they're talking about with criteria or vetting? Yeah, so that's a that's a really important component to this, and this is where I think we have to get this right. Which is why you know I, I don't want to rush it, and I know like we you know there's a the, the 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 asset itself is already in place, but the design and the and the intake criteria we really want to get right. And things that we we know are things not to do. So we've learned from our colleagues elsewhere around the country who've done who've taken similar approaches. And so one of the things that we're we're still working out is that intake criteria. The, the thing that for me is really important is we want to get folks who are not just new entrants into the shelter system per se, but folks who have a more difficult time resolving their homeless experience. So they need that additional wraparound supports. And, and most people do, and we, we see that across the community currently. But we want to make sure that that this is a, a, both a, a place for folks who, who need that additional health and housing support, but also folks who, who, um, who will have more success on the on the back end as well and we'll be able to connect into health system and the housing system on the back end so we're still figuring that out but we have some ideas and again it wouldn't be somebody necessarily just calling the emergency shelter line saying you know i've heard about this comfort in really want to get there um, we're going to have a more intentional intake process both on the housing and on the health side you know, when we compare and contrast, say, to a, an emergency shelter that people can uh, envision in their mind's eye, you know, many people sleeping in the same room versus the autonomy, having your own private room here in a hotel-like setting, how do we ensure that this doesn't become akin to an emergency shelter and the problems that come with it, whether pe- people approach for sexual favors or assaulted or using drugs and the level of security and oversight that would be in place? Because if it simply becomes another emergency shelter, albeit with individual doors and locks, then mm-hmm. I'm not sure we're that much further ahead. So how do we approach it? Well, that's exactly that's exactly what uh, what I'm sort of apprehensive about myself in this process is we just don't want to create this as another emergency shelter arrangement. We want to make sure this is a pathway into into successful housing for folks uh, down the line, right? So that this is essentially that transitional period. And and you know you you hit the nail on the head, Patty. Like, do we want you know those congregate style setting shelters aren't necessarily conducive for for most people, right? Like, I, I'll speak for myself if if I have a couple of nights of bad sleep you know i'm not functioning well and i don't think we would expect folks who are who are more vulnerable and who have uh, more complexities attached to their to their needs around mental health or addiction like you've talked about those folks need that space and that autonomy so we want to make sure that it's there that the supports are wrapped around both on the housing and on the health side but it is a place where where folks can you know, gain a sense of trust. Like, I think that's the piece that we want to build as part of the culture in this system is 
that there's trust in it and that trust is broken and that's you know and hence the conversations that we've you know you've been having with a lot of the organizers and some of the protesters and some of the residents so we need to build that trust component into it and we need to work with folks and that's why it seems like you know harm reduction approaches trauma-informed approaches and really person-centered approaches to, to service delivery uh, with a focus on housing becomes so important and that's the the piece that um, I don't want to get lost in this I think that's one of those really intangible things that are so important to make to making this a success it's got to be safe I can only hope there's going to be some pretty strict monitoring and security on site because that was that'd be one of the key ways to avoid going down the mercy shelter path Doug you remember the task force can you illuminate us as to what other issues or options are being considered you know we hear people talk about modular homes and or modified shipping containers and there's a variety of different things and provinces have looked at different issues like in uh, the province of Ontario we saw Mark Wilson do his tour I think it was Peterborough or Waterloo where they've got these modified shipping containers in one area and they share communal kitchen and washroom facilities but is are any of these other options being considered not at the moment and i and i and i don't mean to suggest that they wouldn't be i just so where we are in terms of of of, of the task force is you know the first priority was 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 coming together and, and making sure we had a coordinated approach to support the folks down at colonial building um just to make sure that we were coordinating our efforts uh, to make sure folks had uh, access to, to support, housing, shelter, uh, case management, whatever it may have been. Um, that, and that was the real push. But I know we're, we're pivoting now and starting to look at, obviously, this, this the, the hotel facility and how that can be integrated into the broader shelter system and the housing systems. But um, we're still now shifting to those sort of more immediate and then longer-term approaches. So not to say that those modular home options aren't being considered. They're not now, but they could be as part of a sort of a medium and a long-term approach to this and you know as a member of the of the of the task force my hope is is that we don't just look at this in isolation that this is just a response to to a protest but that this is a response to you know a system that's been that's been broken and pushed to the seams for for some time and that we can really recalibrate like really rethink how this is done and that's why when i talk about sort of the transformation it is a system transformation having a transitional hotel facility with that health and housing and community supports integrated in and that's the kind of thing that i'm, I'm going to continue to push for um, within the task force and sort of you know my 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 day-to-day work uh, within homeless of st john's in the in in the community uh doug i appreciate your time as usual anything else this morning uh no thanks for having me patty and and anytime folks have questions feel free to reach out um always happy to have a a chat with where things are going stay in touch thanks doug welcome bye-bye doug fawson executive director at end homelessness st john's before the break line three sylvia you're on the air Hi, good morning. I uh, found a set of keys, uh, Fall River Plaza parking lot, during that uh, blustery weather Saturday between about 5.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. About, uh, uh, about three parking uh, strips out from the uh, buildings around in, uh, Domino's. So I found a set of keys. I won't overly describe them because there is a character on them, and uh, I posted it on VOCM as well. I appreciate that. So a set of keys found during the blustery weather at Fall, uh, Fall River Plaza, about three parking strips away from the facility, or I guess away from Domino's. So if you lost your keys, Sylvia has them. You want them just to call us if they're looking for the keys or call you, Sylvia? Uh, this, is a, this is a textable number, and I'll leave a description with the uh 
people that use this this line. Yep. Okay. So they can give us a call. Dave has your number. We'll try to connect you. Yeah, thanks. I was just a bit concerned because I wasn't hearing anything and uh, somebody might be looking for them. Oh, I'm sure they are. And scrambling looking for them. I appreciate this, Sylvia. Hopefully we can return them. Yeah, and it was such bad weather. I felt really badly. It was right beside my passenger door. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Take good care. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, uh, John wants to talk about the Comfort Inn Transition House. Rod Poik is the chair of NL Crime Stoppers. The topic we're going to discuss today, contraband tobacco. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the chair of NL Crime Stoppers. That's Rod Pike. Good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. And first of all, Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. The very same to you, Rod. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to have us come on again. I'm going to try to keep this as to the point and as simple as we can, because you may have received some of the information I sent you. I have, yeah. Uh, This can be very involved and... I think overbearing to listen to, so we're not going to we're not going to take that route today. Uh, I'm going to try to just cover a couple of points uh, for your listeners and for yourself. But first, let me state what I think is one of the real challenges in talking about illicit tobacco. For those that smoke, the ability to buy cigarettes at a reduced price is a actually it's a pretty enticing thing. So some listening to the call may think that what we're trying to say is go and pay more for your cigarettes. That's not what we're doing. We want to try to make a linkage that uh, cheaper tobacco is available, but it comes at a real price. It comes at a real cost. So point one, the purchase of illicit tobacco directly funds organized crime. And those funds go into our communities in the form of drugs, guns, human trafficking, and other crime. So it affects uh, really all areas of our lives. Uh, In that Ernst & Young report that I sent you, uh, it covered many things from um, really revenue loss to the government, uh, all those kind of issues. But again, we want to keep focusing on where that money goes. It goes to organized crime. It goes to making uh, our communities a a little more unsafe. So that's the first point we want to deal with. Before we get to another point, just how common or how prevalent is the presence of contraband tobacco here in this province? It's probably, uh, maybe to put it in in some perspective, when COVID came and borders, shipping, uh, moving of goods was reduced, the sale of legal tobacco shot up some 40% in our province. And that was because the ability to put your hands on illicit tobacco was reduced. Almost to the day when borders reopened, uh, the sale of uh, legal tobacco fell back down to somewhere over 40%. So it's a huge number. In terms of revenue, uh, taxation to the government uh, can be looked at somewhere around $25 some estimates up over $50 Uh, in terms of what's lost. So it's a big dollar number. Um, And again, if we think of that money as not just flowing into the coffers of government uh, or into taxation that, you know, goes to our roads and everything else, it's going to crime. So it's a a really big number. Obviously so. Uh, So 
when we talk, when you know, here's some of these stories. Someone's pulled over, they got X amount in outstanding fines. People think that's all traffic fines, but that could be the lack of child support payments offered. And many, many times it includes the sale of, intra- of contraband tobacco. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one, of, one of the, and I don't want to sound that I'm more authoritative than I am, I'm researching this the same as I hope a lot of people will do. Just Google uh, illicit tobacco, and and there's so much information out there. It's not restricted to Newfoundland, B.C., Ontario, Nova Scotia. We're the four worst provinces, if we can put it that way, in regards to the amount of illicit tobacco. Certainly per capita we are as well. Uh, but this is global. This this could be New Zealand if you look it up. It could be Europe. It could be the States. This problem is huge. The sale of um, one little study that we looked at said that the sale of illicit tobacco is eight times more profitable to traffic than cocaine with way less severe penalties. So why why is it out there? The biggest reason is it's an easy source of funding for crime. And so if I don't smoke patty, maybe you do or don't, but if I did, this message is always going to be mixed. It's saying I'm going to pay more uh, to go and purchase the legal cigarette. And that's a hard one to make that connection between what we don't really care where you get your cigarettes in regards to what you're going to have to pay for it. But if the money you're going to pay to get it cheaper is going to go to support crime in your neighborhood, it's a problem. And it comes back at us, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our, um, you know, in our workplace, whatever it may be, the, the lack of funding uh, to government matters. Uh, and yes, we're kind of saying that, um, you know, maybe taxation is good sometimes maybe it is but funding of crime is never good yeah I mean people have to look past the end of their cigarette to see what the implications are of how they spend their money where they spend their money and then who spends that money in what areas I mean if it's organized crime it comes with absolutely zero upside 100% true Uh, one of one of the uh, one of just give me half a second here now I should have been a little better Patty I should have called you first and said what to speak about um the, the loss in, uh, even for a retail outlet who's a corner store that we may go to to pick up our, our goods and that, they're losing revenue to keep that store going as well. So it's a mom-and-pop operation or it's a bigger store. Uh, the funds that, if that person's not coming in buying their cigarettes there, it's a loss of revenue to them as well. And that translates into what they can go and buy their car for, where they're going to spend money in the community. All those things impact us negatively. But we will always go back to that first step. What you're really doing is getting a cheaper cigarette at a cost. You're, you're, you're paying money into organized crime. And those, those are real. Uh, that's not fictional. It, that money really does go into crime in our city, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. The most recent big drug bust here in the province not only came with cocaine and hydromorphone and other various uh, substances and uh, uh, gone, but it also came with thousands of illegal cigarettes. So they're on the same table, obviously the same link. 100%. You might recall a a little over a year ago there was quite a large uh, confiscation of illegal tobacco coming off a ferry in Port of Basque. I think it was 1.7 million cigarettes and a substantial amount of cash. And we thought when that happened that we would see a dip in the numbers of of maybe a a rising of the legal tobacco or a drop in the sale of illegal tobacco. It didn't didn't bump. It didn't, didn't change the numbers, which is staggering in one sense because that meant there were a lot of other trailers coming in with, with a lot of cigarettes on them as well. 
And I'm not sure how staggered I am by that because every time you bust someone selling cocaine, the backfill is immediate. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. And, and I, I guess it's just that reminder that this is prevalent. It, it's out there. And we don't expect that this call today to you is going to change uh, everything overnight. We simply want to try to put that awareness there that there is a downside to to buying illicit tobacco. Um, you know, you are funding organized crime and other crimes that we see in, in the community. And uh, we wonder why is that happening or where are they getting the money to do that? This is where some of that money comes from. And, and so we simply want to alert the public that it it is a concern um, when they're aware of someone that is uh, purchasing or selling illicit tobacco, we would encourage that uh, anonymously, again, through Crime Stoppers, that that information could be provided, and we will then give it to the appropriate authorities to let them deal with it. Uh, if I can just say one thing, whenever I'm hoping over the year we're going to be able to touch base with you from time to time on various matters, but we also want to remind people of who we are. Is that okay? Absolutely. But I just have one question. Yeah, you know, you talk about the value for the people who are peddling this contraband tobacco versus the amount of money they can make, say, for instance, selling cocaine. And talk about the fact that the legal implications are vastly different. We all have a basic understanding of what happens if, if and when you're caught trafficking in cocaine, for instance. What kind of penalties are associated with being caught selling illegal tobacco? Yeah, the penalties are way less, and, and again, I'm not I'm not in the judicial system, but some of the numbers I looked at is that you can get anywhere from 90 days to two years uh, in prison for this. Uh, one of the, one of the problems right now, I think nationally, certainly I think provincially as well, is that the laws haven't changed to address this. Um, again, if you can if you can fund crime. Uh, with less risk doing A than you would doing B, you're probably going to pick A. So uh, I think the judicial system is probably going to look at this and say we have to make it more severe uh, in terms of penalizing people that are involved in this. But there is still substantial jail time. It can be two years if you're caught. I think that's the maximum right now. But again, I would defer to... uh, to the judicial system to, to clarify that, but that's my understanding. When I was a teenager, there was notoriously a brown van that used to park behind the then-called Trades College selling illegal smokes, and Obviously we right. unfortunately did it, you know, because we were young and I would <clears throat> suggest probably stupid. But they're pretty brash when it comes to this. I mean, they've got online portals where you just click a link and you can buy illegal tobacco. Everyone knows it's illegal, but it's right there online, and they're not hiding it. I think I sent you a link uh, late last I got night it, smokescanada.com. And it, it's incredible. I mean, uh, you're right. You can do it without leaving your house. And uh, But I guess that's true to just with any crime you want to do. There's, there's a way to get it if you want it. Um, so, again, just to go back with Crime Stoppers, what we are is a community-based group. We're a registered charity. We work through media and through the law enforcement, and most importantly, through the public providing information to us about a crime that's occurred in their neighborhood uh, that we can then forward to the appropriate law enforcement uh, to have them investigate it and, uh, and deal with that crime. I want to be really clear that some people believe if something is happening today, you look out your window at BOCM and see a crime, that you should call Crime Stoppers. You should not. If it's something that's happening and in the moment, that's always going to be a 911 call. Uh, call local police. They can deal with it. We want to be, we're geared to deal with something that has happened, uh, that we can provide information to help solve a crime. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a distinction there. Sometimes we get calls that we can't handle. So if it's immediate, call the police. 
if it's something that's happened uh, earlier today or yesterday, you're aware of crime in your neighborhood, call us, give us the information. You will remain anonymous, and hopefully we can make a difference to, uh, to bring some solving of that. I appreciate the time as usual. Roger, always welcome. Okay, I appreciate it. I hope that helped a little. And if you have any questions, uh, reach out to us. Uh, you can get us on a P3 app if you have a, uh, a link on your phone that you can report crime. You can always call the number, which you recited very well the last time, 1-800-222-TIPS. And uh, we hope everyone has a great year of 2024. Talk again soon, Rod. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patty. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Rod Pike is the chair of NL Crime Stoppers. Uh, Break time. John, you're next. We appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about the Comfort in Transition House. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. John, you are on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, Patty, I guess as I get older, my rose-colored glasses are starting to get cracked. Because, you know, I'm, I'm hearing about this, the Newfoundland government renting out the Comfort Inn for the homeless. Now, please don't anybody get me wrong. To those people who actually need it, I have nothing but sympathy and empathy for those people. But the problem is, is that the majority of these people who are living in tent city or are homeless are there due to their own doing, be it drugs or be it whatever. Now, you spoke about the government of BC, um, you know, purchasing a hotel or purchasing a, a living facility for the homeless. The Newfoundland government is not going to do that for the simple reason that if they purchase it, then they are going to be responsible for uh, the that state that it's going to be in, and well, they're still responsible even in a lease arrangement. Yeah, but they're they're not to the to the same extent that they would be, you know, had they purchased it. And and the Newfoundland government doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. And you know, Doug but, said, but John, in all fairness, they'll be responsible for everything. Okay, all right. So they'll be responsible for, but. What I'm what I'm trying to say is that, uh, and you know, Doug spoke about, uh, you know, you guys spoke about like communal, you know, a whole group of people under one roof, and Doug said that, you know, he said he didn't know about uh, you, but if he didn't get uh, several good hours of sleep at night, then he was useless the next day. Well, you know what, Doug, you can lay your head on your desk and take a rest. What are these people going to do? They're not going to be able to stand out on the on the intersections and hold a hand out because they're tired. Too bad. So, I mean, you say it's of your own doing. It's a self-inflicted wound to find yourself in that predicament. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated, John, to be honest. I mean, so you use addictions. The fact of the matter is anyone can become addicted. You know, many times people think those who are suffering with addictions to whatever, let's just say cocaine or heroin, whatever the case may be, is that, well, these are all the downtrodden uh, bad people in the first place when that might not be the case. I mean, I know personally of one fella who had a wife and family and good job, had a back surgery three years later on the street, addicted and no coming back. 
are now dead. So there's reasons why people find themselves in those predicaments. Look, no one's insinuating that we're giving free pass to illegal drug use and what it means for society and organized crime and all the rest of it. But I just think it's a bit more complicated. Add to it, some people have very complicated mental health issues, and they're part of some of the homeless uh, homeless population as well. So, and you mentioned dogs' inability to get a good night's sleep. What it means the next day for functionality. Uh, I don't sleep very well every, any night. So. Inside that world, about congregant living is not just about not being able to get asleep. I mean, we've heard sexual assault, physical assault, people who are actually trying to kick the drug habit, being exposed to people using the exact drug they were addicted to. So, again, I think it's just kind of a bit more complicated. Yeah, no, I, and, and again, like I said, Patty, you know, to those people that, that like you just spoke about, again, I have sympathy and empathy for those people. But the people who are on the other side of that scale, I, I have absolutely none. My son works in a convenience store, and he said he sees it daily that the, the crowd that's, that's out on, on the intersections with their hand out begging for money, they'll come into the store, they'll buy beer and cigarettes and steal food. Oh, look, there's, there's bad people out there. There's tons of bad people in a variety of circumstances, those who, who own their own home or are without a home. What's also important, and I'll get your thoughts on this part of it, John, it's not just about somewhere to sleep. Because what they use in reference to transition is the support's there to try to get you back on your own two feet. So whether it be to try to kick an addiction, to try to address your mental health issues, to try to get you some training, to maybe enroll you in the Employment Stabilization Program, which has been moderately successful in the past. So the, the key word there is transition. It's not a long-term solution. That's not what people are trying to accomplish here. They're trying to change people's trajectory, to get them back to where they can support themselves, be out there in the workforce, pay their own rent, Buy, have their own mortgage. So I think that transition is a big piece of this. What do you think? I I hope it. I hope for those people it, it actually works. I, I honestly do. But I think a part of of this uh, agreement opening up the comfort in should be uh, mandatory drug testing. And if you're found with illicit drugs in your system, out. Get out. Go back to wherever it was you just came from. You have... If, if you're going to continue to abuse it, then you no longer have a right to it. Should, should there be a window of taking advantage of addiction treatments before that's the issue? Because if we're going to have that criteria upon entering in the first place, boy, we're going to have a lot of people who are just out there in the same predicament they find themselves in today, as opposed to if we can get them off their, whatever drug they're addicted to, then they have a better chance in life. You know, and one of the programs that I would suggest, in addition to your thoughts, is what they've rolled out here at the beginning of last year, uh, the calendar year here in the city of St. John's. If you are on income support, you were given an opportunity to be involved in the Employment Stabilization Program. 170 people signed up. It was a couple of bucks to buy the hard, uh, the, the uh, steel toe boot or some proper clothes to uh, get a job. Then there was some really minimal financial incentives if you kept the job after six months, 12 months, 18 months. As a result, over the course of just one year, out of the 170, 40 people no longer needed income support. I mean, you know, putting that type of stuff in place, getting a chance to get your GED, your high school equivalents, and 
and all the other issues that tried to get you back on track. Because unless we have you as a captive audience, it's hard to administer those types of supports if you're just doing it on an ad hoc basis, if people just show up, you know, at the gathering place to avail of it, and then you don't see them for a week. So I think there's upside here that if you have them in one area with the, the supports and the wraparound services there at the same time, they have a much better chance to no longer be reliant on government. Absolutely. And, and you know, again, like I said, to, to those people who actually want it, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're going to work at it to, to not have to avail of that system. But the problem is that there's so many more that are just hand out, hand out, hand out, hand out. It's always going to be the case. I think the, yep. these types of policies and approaches are trying to reduce the numbers of people who have their hand out, as you put it. Yes, and, and you, know, you know, they've got to, there's, they've got to try to find those people. And, and, you know, these are the ones that should get first crack at these programs and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But as, as for, you know, like I said, as for the ones that are always hand out, hand out, and, and again, like I told you, you know, my son about working in the convenience store, uh, you know, going in and, and buying their beer and cigarettes and stealing food. Just, you know, like I said, my, my, my rose-colored glasses are just... I think I'm just going to have to put them on the shelf somewhere because I, I can't look through them anymore. Uh, I, I get where you're coming from. And I have no earthly idea of the percentage of people who find themselves in this predicament in life are willing to continue that for a lifetime versus if they had a bit of help and a bit of support that they could get back on track. I mean, I don't think there's a great percentage of people who want to be homeless and are happy enough to be homeless and are happy enough to be addicted, happy enough to be in poor health, happy enough to be struggling with their mental, uh, their mental illness. I think we're probably... On the other side of 50% of people who actually want some help, and hopefully if they get some help, they can get back on track. I don't know what the breakdown will be. I think it would be impossible to come up with that number. But people, I, I'm not trying to summarize everything you said, but yes, in part, I think you're right in that. People with offer the support have to put the work in. It yes. can't be a one-way street because that doesn't work for anything. It barely works in traffic, let alone getting for your lifestyle. So they have to put in the work in addition to the support being offered. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, the, the only other thing, like, you know, you, talk, you talked about that, that gentleman that you know of, wife and, and family. And, it was and, a devastating story. Yeah. And, and, you know, in that case, uh, you know, again, my, my heart goes out, but you don't get addicted after, and, I, and I'm speaking about illicit drugs. It's, it's a choice. Don't anybody dare ever say to me that, uh, you know... Um, Addiction's not a choice. Wasn't their, it wasn't their choice. Well, this, it was their yeah. choice to take that cocaine or take the heroin or take whatever. Now, here's his story, John. He had a serious back surgery, and he yeah. was prescribed chronic pain medication in the form of OxyContin. When he could no longer get it, his body was already addicted. It's a physiological issue. He wasn't even a drug user prior to that. He was a weekend sipper of wine. This wasn't yeah. his makeup at all. The physiological reaction and then reliance on things like OxyContin, that's not a choice. Me. No, that's that's not, your body. Not in that case, no. But I'm talking about you know people who who do coke, uh, cocaine, or 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 shoot heroin or do whatever. That to, to, when they start that, that's a, my son. Uh, 
used to smoke uh, marijuana. And I've, I've never, ever done it. I, I don't believe in it. I don't have any time for it. I don't care if it's legal or not legal. Uh, he doesn't do it anymore. Um, but, it, you know, it's like I told him, I said, you choose to do that. Don't don't tell me that that you know it it you know it may lead to addiction, but those first few times you choose to do it. There's different levels of addictive properties of different drugs. Marijuana is not cocaine. It's not heroin. It's not hydromorphone. It's not uh, any of these more much more synthetic toxic drugs. There's different ways people get addicted to different substances. Marijuana is not like some of the other drugs that you mentioned. Uh, John, I appreciate your time, sir. We're up really late for the news, but thank you for the call. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, tricky one. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? I'm glad I could join you this morning. I'm doing well. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to mention my own opinion about the... um, hotel leasing agreement and uh you know kind of go off of your last caller who you know it's so unfortunate patty because we hear calls like that a lot and it's no surprise that there are still a lot of you know my personal anecdote is that newfoundland is about five years behind on modern sensibilities and of course people who've never struggled with addiction won't understand addiction and you know i should mention i've never struggled with addiction myself but i do smoke marijuana every single day and i am a happy independent a uh, member of society contributing every day. You know, I have a nine to five job, but the issue I believe with this hotel is the government is happy to spend millions of dollars to a hotel mobile, but the issue is is not that these people need housing so much as that these people may need that addiction treatment. And 100%. I haven't heard much about millions of dollars being spent on addiction treatment here in Newfoundland recently. No, we don't have the type of supports uh, required. Here's how I will just encapsulate it. So if we go with the status quo, then to me, the status quo doesn't work at all for anybody, regardless if you're addicted or not. Who's more Mm -hmm. likely to break into your home? People who are struggling with their addictions and trying to find money to fuel their addiction, uh, can't get a job because of a severe addiction, you know, are really not helping society, period. They're harming themselves. They're in a death spiral. Or give some support to someone who actually wants it and is willing to put in the work. They kick their addiction. They get a job. Who's going to be more likely to break into your home? The person who's addicted and struggling or the person who's kicked the habit and is now working and gainfully employed and independent? That is a perfect example, Patty. Now, I do believe that this transitional housing, that there will be people helped, you know, but I, I drive around St. John's all day and I couldn't put my finger on 140 homeless people, honestly. 140 seems like an awful lot of rooms. But the real issue is, housing aside, why won't they take some of those millions of dollars and put them towards addictions treatment? So that these people don't end up in the hotel in the first place, you know, and I I'm I'm really one who doesn't agree with the government on most things. And I think that there is an angle here. There is an angle here. These hotel moguls, people like the Holiday Inn, when they had all the Ukrainian refugees staying at the Holiday Inn, people were making millions, millions of dollars, but not normal everyday people, Patty, people at the top. We're making these millions of dollars. Well, it's always our tax money. We're beholden, and understandably, we're beholden to big business. Look, the the issue for me is clear: is 
if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're not going to get any further ahead. Is this going nope. to work? I don't know. Are people going to be willing to put in the work if they're given the supports and the training, you know, part of the employment stabilization program, try to kick the habit, get better attention to their mental well-being? If that's the approach we're taking, then we're all probably better off. Look, I'm not going to benefit from that money being spent by government today, but I might be tomorrow. You know, again, I don't have all the answers because, of course, nobody has all the answers. And the governments provincially, federally have been beholden to big business for decades. This is nothing new. So the hope here, and I sure hope that they've got a policy approach that is different than, you know, the traditional emergency shelter, because if it's simply a roof over your head and all the problems persist and people don't uh, improve their lot in life, none of us are any further ahead. So maybe as a cockeyed optimist, knowing that some of these issues are so wide spread and they come with enormous societal cost if we don't try to do something different then we are just basically throwing our hands in the air say okay well let's just uh, society let it crumble even further <laughs> i mean i don't know no i completely agree and i do believe that the um the tale will be told at the end of the day after this lease is over if it actually made a meaningful difference on the unhoused community you know because i really do think if people are struggling with addiction as severe as it seems, then a roof over their head and the status quo is not going to solve any problems exactly like you said. So I really hope that they approach this differently because I'm, I did remember they mentioned some of the uh, rooms will be observed by the health authority. You know, in what capacity, I'm not sure. And I know this is all in the very early days of, of these agreements anyway. So we will have to kind of wait until it all comes out in the wash. But I really wish that some of those millions of dollars could have gone directly to an addictions treatment facility i mean 21 million dollars over three years i don't know how much it is to make an addiction treatment facility but um well there's no one being built right i mean in fairness the new facility on the health sciences complex does indeed have a keen focus on addictions as well Uh, to what extent Uh, yes at the health science yeah to what extent we're not really sure i don't even think we know all Mm -hmm. the ins and the outs of how this uh comfort in is going to work either still a lot of details yet to be understood criteria for eligibility the vetting process the exact type of services on on hand or on site whether it be with your physical health your mental health your addictions or whatever else is going on opportunities to train to get back out there and fend for yourself, so to speak. So still a lot to be understood about, about exactly what's going to happen, how we think it's going to work, and, you know, measurable goals, which I think government is, usually does a poor job at. You know, give us something. Mm. What's the goal here? And give us some numbers. How do we measure success? Yes, I really think there needs to be some more concrete, uh, you know, things written down on paper as to what they're going to do with this facility when they get it up and running. Now, Patty, if I have any time, I would like to mention one other little issue about this whole hotel leasing agreement, which is a much more smaller issue, but it has to do with people working at the hotel restaurants. I have a lot of friends who are servers, and um, as you know, like um, a lot of the Ukrainian immigrants were staying at hotels and they were getting paid uh, a little stipend to get food at the restaurants. But the thing is, these restaurants, up until these agreements, are being ran as regular restaurants where servers are working for tips. But once these leasing agreements come in, the people that work at these restaurants immediately get an entirely different financial system to their serving work. Because no longer are they serving people for tips. They are basically just handing out pre-made meals with no tips. There is no opportunity for tips. And... Listen, I understand I'm not a fan of the tipping culture we have here in Canada, but that has been the status quo forever. And I am also a handsome tipper when I dine out. And I also understand that the system of servers is designed so that they need their tips. If they do not get those tips, they will not have 
money at the end of the month to make ends meet. So I really don't know what the government is going to do to make up the shortfall that they are in directly creating for servers working at the Clancy's restaurant now once this gets up and running and they are no longer serving paying customers and they're just handing out the pre-made meals. I think that's more between the workers and Judy Sparks Canoe versus the government. That'd be a contractual issue. Yes, that's something to do with the, the restaurant itself. But it's just, I knew people who were in terrible situations because they had worked at hotel restaurants. They were making a certain amount of money from their tips. And as soon as the uh, style changed, they were now in a lurch, hundreds of dollars less every week. So it's really unfortunate. And I think people, that is something that is highly overlooked when these agreements are made, you know, because they're the small people, they're the servers, they're not the people who are getting the consideration of, oh, you're missing out on $100? Well, too bad. The hotel now is making more money than ever because we're getting giant stipends from the government. So it's really unfortunate. And I hope those people advocate for themselves. And I just wanted to put that out to your listeners because maybe some of these people are servers at the Clancy's restaurant and they don't realize what's coming, but that's what I have seen in the past with these certain housing agreements. And I did want to mention that to your listeners because it's something that seems to only affect servers, so only servers are talking about it. But it's not only servers that's affecting it because if a server ends up getting evicted, then what are they going to be? They're going to be the next person staying at the hotel. Well, servers, I mean, I worked in the hospitality industry for about a decade. And to take it one step further before I have to get to the break is, any loss of income has an impact on the general economy. Government is not the economy. Me and you and our ability to spend, that's the economy. I mean, exactly. You know, far too often we give government you know, massive amounts of credit for economic upticks when, in fact, people have just had increases in their wage because, of course, there's labor shortages. We hold a bit more of a hammer than maybe we did in years past. So there's a lot to the you know, giving government all the credit and or criticism for economic successes because there's a million moving parts inside that conversation. I have to get to the break, but I appreciate your time. Thank you for your time as well, Patty. You guys have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. uh, There you go. Let's take a break. Uh, Dave will tell me who's next (laughs) during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Sean, you are on the air. Good morning, Patrick, and Happy New Year to you. Same to you. Thank you, Sean. Can you believe we've come from 2000 to 2024 in a flash like that? God. I can't believe it. It's been a whirlwind. It, it really is. It seems like just yesterday we celebrated the new, new millennium and we were thinking that everything's going to shut down, the computers are all going to fail, we'll all be destitute. 24 years later, it's hard to believe. Where has it gone? Anyway, I've, I've got a couple of things this morning, Patty. And uh, number one, I think the government did a uh, fabulous job in getting that uh, hotel under their uh, wing quickly because of the situation we're in. You know, don't forget, just a couple of months ago, uh, the crisis we were in, trying to get people out of Tent City, and for every person at Tent City, there's, there's lots and lots more floating around. And if you just go down by the gathering place in the Salvation Army and drive by there, you see how bad it really is. I mean, they're lined up for breakfast and lunches, and they're all walking along those streets after they pick up their box lunch or their bag lunch or breakfast every day. And uh, and it's just so hard to watch. And our taxpayers' dollars are there to support uh, that kind of thing and to try and uh, remediate that. And I think what the government's done here with the hotel lease, and we could talk about it all day with regard to whether we should have bought it yet or whether leasing that was a good thing. 
uh, I'm sure we're going to come up with a solution. All remains uh, to be seen. But now some of the places you see people lined up for food banks, what have you, not necessarily all taxpayer dollars. You know, when you talk about Bridges to Hope and Salvation Army and some of those places where you see the massive lineups. And the previous caller said, you know, he drives around town all day and be hard-pressed to identify 140 people who are homeless. Homeless is not necessarily 100% simply that you have no choice but to sleep outside in the elements. You got people who are couch surfing. You got people who are a paycheck away from being homeless. You got folks who are living in congregant facilities, emergency shelters. So it doesn't mean that nobody but nobody has a place to uh, get in and out of the elements because it's not that and that alone. There's a little bit more to it. And then, Patty, uh, yeah, like your point is well taken on the fact it's not all taxpayers' dollars. But about our taxpayers' dollars... Uh, assist in all those areas in like in a great deal and and all of us donate I mean everybody uh, puts at least I think everybody who's got an extra dollar in their pocket walking out of supermarkets or or any other places when, when they bring food to to events you know lots of events over Christmas would say look bring something for the food bank that that that's your admission fee that kind of thing so yes like we all are involved in that but 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 see because the taxpayers dollars were used for the purchase of this hotel or sorry, the, the, the leases hotel at $7 million a year. And it works down to about $135 a night per room. And if you look at that, we can probably put at least four people to a room, bring in a couple of cots, and, and it's very comfortable. you got your own bathroom. You don't have to share a bathroom with 20 or 30 other people like you would at some other facilities or drop-in facilities. So, you know, it, like it's a fabulous idea. And to your point in your last caller, talking about the addiction process, and how we can help those people. The, the province is putting in a, uh, a nursing station with, with specialists there, and we have all these people, or a lot of them, uh, that are being, uh, I guess, missed by the system because they don't go looking for the help. But here we have them all underneath, or a lot of them all underneath one roof, and, and we can assess them, we can guide them, we can put them through programs. They're right underneath the one roof. It's just fabulous. I know it's not in the ideal situation or place because it's all the way up by the airport, but hey, look, we had nothing just a couple of months ago. Now we have a place where we have 140 rooms. We can probably put as many as 350 to 400 people or more in there in different situations for, for, for uh, critical housing and, and meals and, and medical support and, and, uh, and expertise in, in, uh, in all kinds of health issues from mental health to, to, uh, to addiction. So I think it's a really good move. And I'm sure a lot of people in the province today are saying, thank God we're going to start making a good, you know, like a good move on this problem that we had before Christmas. And, and hopefully it'll do the, we start the job of trying to help the addictions issues and all the other issues, mental health and so on, that we have in this province. And uh, the, the, the other thing. Oh, sorry, did you have a comment on that? Or? Well, it remains to be seen how successful it might be. And I'd like right. to know how we uh, measure success on this front, to be honest with you, because there are different tools we can apply to see if we're on the right track or we have to rejig, re-jig midstream here. So there's a lot more yet to be understood. You know, right now it's just the headline of three-year lease, 140 rooms, transition, wraparound services. A bit more yet to be fully understood here, but I get where you're going. Did you want to talk about traffic accidents before yes, I have to move on? Yeah, uh, years ago when I was a young gaffer, around 20 years old, um, I was involved in just for a summer some training uh, when it comes to training people on their driving, uh, get them ready for the driving courses and all that, you know, through young drivers. And I took that program, and it was the best thing I ever did. And one of the trainers uh, gave me one thing in my head that stuck forever. 
And I can tell you a time that saved my life and my family's life. We were down in Florida one day, and I came off one of the ramps, and you know how you go down around underneath, and then there's like an eight-lane highway going above you. But there's also an eight-lane highway, uh, like like where I'm going to enter in on to, to go to where I'm going. And there's a lot of pillars, you know, big, huge pillars, and you can't really see around them. But uh, And I was sitting at the light. When it turned green, I started to go, and I stopped because I remember that young drivers of Canada and I'm sure they teach you that the other or the other training schools too. I remember what he said, and he said to us, "You know, what's two seconds, three seconds in your life? Take that one hundred or one thousand and one, one thousand and two, one thousand and three before you go, because there's always going to be someone coming through that light, flying through it the last second, try and get through it before you go." And as it turns out, when I was there, I was just about to go. Um, and at the time, my spouse said to me, aren't you going to go? And I said, I was going to go, but I'm just remembering that flashback to my training. And I said, you know, just wait for that. And with that, boom, this, this tractor trailer pulling these huge uh, uh, flatbeds full of uh, lumber flew right through it. I wouldn't be talking to you today, only for that trainer. So my message to everybody out there today, and you know I call in a lot about traffic issues and so on, but this is the message today. Two to three seconds out of your day, like two to three seconds going through an intersection. 1,001, 1,002, look both ways, because accidents happen because someone did something in that moment that they shouldn't have done, and maybe that two to three seconds counting off 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and then make sure you check both ways and then go. What's the harm in that? No harm in that. I appreciate the call, Sean. You're like, aren't you going to go? So don't listen to the guy blowing the horn because it kind of gives you that, 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 that impulse to go right away. Ignore the guy behind you. It's your life and your children and your families and the ones you're going to hit. You know, like it may not be your fault. Who cares whose fault it is at that moment? The insurance companies and police will deal with that after. But, but if you do go through it, and if you're urged on by that guy, that impatient person behind you, blowing the horn on you, and that could cause your life, <laughs> like just take that three seconds, count it off with a thousand and one, uh, and and then you'll probably not only save your own lives. But maybe that jerk or idiot or someone on their phone not paying attention who flew to the intersection, you probably just saved their lives too. Appreciate this. I go with the uh, one Mississippi. Uh, appreciate the time, uh, Sean. Thanks for the call. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Uh, before the break, we're going to get another one. Let's go to line five. Perry, you're on the air. Good day, sir. Good day. iPhone, uh, thank you for the information about getting a brace for my leg. It didn't work out, but thanks for trying. No problem. It's more what the governor's doing. My leg on the side of my bone is deformed, and my foot is all messed up because of the governor. What a place to live. And he thinks he got no problems. I mean, King's Point is the best place i ever been, and he tells me to move to St. John's because I can't make it. And he just, what's the difference? They're not going to give me no more money I'm getting. I don't understand the government. Uh, in his ministry of health, he's putting us down and tramping us in mud. I don't know what in God's world. And nobody got no control over him. And I talked to Brian. Why can't Brian talk to him across the table? What, he's afraid going to lose his job? Just say, boy, what you're doing is wrong. What's wrong with their, their 
I'm not getting no paycheck for what I'm doing. What are they getting a paycheck for? I might be a different way of talking to other other people, but here's my legs all messed up. Uh, my feet on, on times of years to walk on. And social assistance said I didn't deserve $155 for to get a brace, and the only place I could get in was Gander. The only place. And I had no way, I had no way of getting in there. I drive around in a 22-year-old car, and he thinks it must be a Cadillac. You know, I just had the phone tank you and let you know the world's still miserable, especially anybody who do work with the government. Well, if anyone else has anywhere to point me where I can help you get the required brace, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear it didn't work out the place we uh, directed you last time. Uh, anything else, Perry, before we take our break here this morning? No, I just, I just like for the government to start getting some heart and some brains. Or, 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 or at least look at their family as somebody that's going through sickness. I've had two fill surgeries because of doctors, and now I'm still going to trouble because of doctors. I got that money health problems. I wouldn't even start because it takes two hours to tell you. And I got to live with it. And I got to live with, oh, Brian seen me three weeks. This is going over two months. Now I'm trying to get an appointment, and Hagee, or not Hagee, sorry, and Minister Health will not meet with me. Now, what kind of man is he? God? No, there's only one God. All right. Perry, I wish things were better, and if I can help you out with the brace, I'll be more than happy to do it. You take good care of yourself. Yeah, one little thing. Quickly. Uh, a little while ago, I would have handed out doors. Not for a kind person coming along and paying my light bill. And I told him, I had rather tent sleeping. I had nothing. I got no family. What a blessed bunch of people got hearts. It's not hearts. It's stones. Thank you. Take care of yourself, Perry. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll say good morning to the mayor of Bishop's Falls. That's Brian King. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Bishop Falls, Brian King. Mayor King, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. I'm good. Good. Thanks for having me on here, uh, here this morning, Patty. No problem. Patty, I'm just calling in here this morning just to uh, use your program, if I can, just to give us a bit of PR here this morning. Um, and that's to uh, let the people of Bishop's Falls know that on this upcoming Thursday, January the 11th, from 7 to 8 p.m. at the Knights of Columbus, that uh, the town, in, uh, in partnership with uh, Health NL, more specifically the, uh, the Central Zone, We'll be hosting a uh, health care information session and about the Exploits Family Care Team and how uh, the people of Bishop's Falls uh, can utilize that service and what services will be coming to Bishop's Falls. Can you give us a bit more information, like what's coming? Sure. So um, I'll back up a little bit. Um, in April of 2022, uh, Bishop's Falls had lost its last practicing uh, doctor. So uh, after her numerous years of providing fantastic service, uh, to the residents of our community. Our estimates was that roughly around two-thirds of our residents were without a doctor or a physician or some kind of a health care uh, support. So from there, um, the town had put together a, uh, a group 
that was uh, built of a couple of sitting councillors, um, retired staff that worked with uh, in the healthcare field for years, and staff that currently worked in the healthcare field to try and come together as a group uh, to see what we can do to try and bring some kind of level of healthcare back to uh, our community. Uh, so after numerous meetings uh, with Minister Osborne, his staff, uh, talking through the uh, Central Premier's office uh, and others, uh, we had uh, come up with a solution uh, that can provide some of the health care uh, service for our residents, which is we will be having a satellite uh, family care team's office now in Bishop's Falls. I mean, you know, I've often wondered aloud what the municipality's role will be in healthcare. So, you know, we talked about financial incentives and all that, but, and, you know, painting a picture to uh, the government as to how your community is an attractive place for healthcare professional, doctor, or, or otherwise to move to. So it really does take an effort on, the, on behalf of the municipalities. It's not simply, well, the province, here's your job, go do it, because if we all don't try to do what we can for our own residents, then we're going to be left in the lurch, most likely, anyway. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there is that fine line about, you know, what role does a municipality play when it comes to uh, doctor recruitment or retention or, you know, what can we do as a municipality when it comes to providing health care for our residents. And, you know, we're all smaller communities and we're all restricted in what we can offer uh, when it comes to financially. Uh, However, you know, what we can offer to a physician uh, or some kind of health care professional is, Uh, quality of life and you know Bishop's Falls is uh, like many but you know we are certainly a uh, a very uh, thriving community that's on the uprise Uh, we can create a great balance of life for any professional and doctors included Uh, but at the same time you know with the model that we uh, we have proposed the government is that by offering a satellite family care teams clinic within Bishop's Falls one is it provides a form of health care service to our residents, and two, it'll help alleviate a major backlog and stress that's been downloaded since the retirement of our doctor on the emergency services located in Bywood and in Grand Falls, Windsor, too, as well. So uh, by providing this service in Bishop's Falls, uh, you know, we're hitting two, uh, two checks on the, on the, on the checkboxes. You say that the community is thriving around the uptick. Uh, why? Mining activity in the area, or what do you point to the finger at? Yeah, yeah. You know, we've uh, in Central. You know, just to extend off the conversation of healthcare, but you know, in Central, we all hear of the economic uh, potentials that are happening and some that are on the uprise. You know, with the uh, wind energy firm in Botwood and with the. Uh, with the mining that's going on in the area and you know we're seeing a lot of activity start to spin off from that so you know we're anticipating you know an increase uh, you know of our population within our community so services like this are very important to offer to residents that are looking to come to the area. Any thoughts on that wind to hydrogen ammonia proposal and Botwood would be the hub? Because, you know, municipal leaders are chiming in far and wide. And, of course, residents, some people are talking about this as a really a, a welcome boon. I think the mayor of Botwood has been very encouraged on this front. What are your thoughts? Mm. 
Yeah, well, I wasn't really prepared to discuss that topic. Well, that's okay. You don't have to if you don't want to. You know, no, no, absolutely no. We've, uh, you know, we've been a part of the conversations with that too as well. Obviously, Bot what is being the primary driver behind those conversations, but we've been in the loop and we've met with uh, with the town of Botwood and along with other municipalities in the region, and they've been keeping us in the loop there too as well. And it certainly does seem as though it's certainly going to have some huge economic uh, impacts. Uh, for the better, uh, for the region, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's a, an economic upside. People will focus in on things like environmental impact, which is very real, and it does come with an environmental impact. And we've had many different conversations about you know different facets, recycling, reliability, the market on the other side of the pond. So there's a lot to it. And I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I think when you mentioned oh, it, I had no choice. <laughs> No, no, for sure. And, and it is very complex. No, there's a lot of moving parts uh, that goes along with it. And most of those concerns are certainly valid. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, nobody uh, within the region, certainly from a, from a municipality leadership standpoint, would want to see anything that would create any devastation when it comes to our resources that we currently have. 100%. I appreciate the time. Give the folks the details one more time. No problem. So it's this coming Thursday at 7 to 8 o'clock at the Knights of Columbus on Main Street in Bishop's Falls. Uh, we will be hosting an information session along with the, uh, the central zone of Health NL uh, to provide an update on uh, some health care services that, uh, that will be coming to Bishop's Falls. Appreciate the so time this anyone morning. That, so anyone that has any questions or concerns, please come forward. We want you to come out to the meeting. And as well, um, the Exploits uh, family care team will be there and they will be assisting people if they need it uh, where they will sign you up to uh, patient connect nl2 as well so i appreciate the time mayor king thanks for this okay thank you have a great day you too bye-bye okay, bye brian bye. king the mayor of bishop's falls uh, yeah, Patient Connect, if people are, aren't aware, if you do not have a family doctor, that's the way to get one. It's the only way to get one as opposed to calling from clinic to clinic. You go to Patient Connect NL, and that's the registry to get on to a collaborative care clinic and or to a uh, family doctor. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about rate increases inside of long-term care facilities, and then Mike wants to talk about Supreme Court. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, oops. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's try line number seven. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Hi. I'm calling about the rate increases for the private uh, nursing homes. Okay. Um, excuse me. My mom is in uh, a nursing home, a private home, and her rate has increased 150%. It, it's madness. We've heard these stories. Of course, we had the Province of Seniors Advocate, Susan Walsh, on the show talking about this. You know, one of the big concerns was just how quickly the rate increases are coming. At this moment in time, it's 30 days' notice. And that's an awful lot to swallow inside of 30 days and increase as you uh, articulate. Uh, like I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm really glad that the homeless are being looked after and everything like that. But those senior citizens have paid their dues to society, probably raised children who are contributing to society, and now are struggling to have a decent life for however much time they have left. But of course, as you mentioned, some of these increases we're seeing inside the privately owned sector. So what are you suggesting government's role could or should be here? They, they can at least contribute so much to 
help pay for those costs that are incurred at the nursing homes. Yeah, I suppose that would require a program tailor-made to individuals because, you know, we heard a story that sparked the uh, Seniors Advocates role here, and it was about a 14% increase, $450 per month with a 30-day notice. So I guess you'd have to know who the people are, their capacity to pay, how much of an increase they're facing, and consequently what government's role could be percentage-wise, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's there's a lot of people besides my mom who are in the same position. And I just wanted to call in to voice my opinion. Absolutely. You know, it's probably not going to do any good, but at least I know that it's out there and there's other people, I'm sure, in the same position. Uh, absolutely right, and it's an important conversation. I'm glad you called on it. We understand that there's about 600 home care, or pardon me, care home residents that don't qualify for any subsidies because they, uh, they don't meet the financial threshold. That doesn't mean that the financial threshold is good enough because the, the threshold has to be reflective of the rent. So if the rent has increased, then consequently I would suggest that the threshold has to increase as well because it's all about ability to pay. So you can't have one without the other. If we've got 600 folks who are unable to meet the subsidy and are also facing an increase in rent, then obviously we've got to deal with the threshold first. Then consequently maybe bring more seniors into the fold for those who are eligible. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Well, my, my mom's rent went up about $1,200 over last month. $1,200 increase per month? Yes. Man, oh man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just totally flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. I can't believe it either because the story that sparked this was 14% and $450, which is still a huge amount of money for most people, but a $1,200 increase. Yep. I, I mean, at some point, the care, the pro, pro, pardon me, the private operator is going to price himself out of business. Yeah, uh, to me, that's totally ridiculous. So what's the plan? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know where to turn to, to see what's happening, why it went up that much inexplicable that's just i mean who's able to absorb that i mean i work full time i couldn't i couldn't absorb an additional 1200 bucks on my mortgage exactly yeah okay I, i'm glad you brought it up i'll put it back on the front burner to elaborate further on it today tomorrow because it's just there's just so many different issues flying around that it's hard to keep all of them on the front burner but i'm glad your call has put this one back out there Okay. Well, I, I called the seniors advocate this morning. I'm waiting to hear back from them, and I'm going to call our government member to see if I can get find out why her rent up, went up so much. And it's not for me to tell you what to do, but what my uh, question for my member would also be, what do you want to do or what do you think we should do about increasing the financial threshold to be more eligible for subsidies? Because the member that you speak to is simply going to say, well, it's a private home and there's not much I can do, but the thing that the government can do is address the financial thresholds. Exactly. So th that's where I'd go with the uh, on a government official. And the seniors advocate, on this front, she was simply talking about the fact that, you know, not only the amount, which is a problem, but the threshold and the fact that 30 days notice. I mean, even in the private rental market, I have to give you 90 days notice, but for a senior living in a personal care home, only 30 days? So yeah. there's a lot of unfairness attached here. Oh, it is, yes. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening to me. I appreciate your call. And Happy New Year to you. The same to you and your mother. Thank you very much. Take good care.
Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. So there are subsidies, right? But, I mean, government should be able to very quickly acknowledge the fact that if we've got, and I think it's around 600 folks who are ineligible for the subsidy, but if rent increases go up, then obviously, if we're talking about ability or capacity to pay the rent without a subsidy, then that financial threshold simply has to change. You know, even if it doesn't uh, encapsulate any more than or reducing the number from 600 to 500 to 403 or whatever the number might be then now more and more folks are going to find themselves in this problem so looking at the threshold how you know some of these seniors who are amongst the 600 you wonder how many of them are within a stone's throw of meeting the threshold to get a bit of a subsidy dollar from the government anyway we'll keep that conversation going let's go to line number two mike you're on the air good morning patty morning mike i uh I was wondering, I was listening to Buddy there talking earlier when I finally got a chance to listen online this morning about the uh, laws and that and stuff and organized crime. But uh, anyway, besides that, uh, I think he's in for a fight. But anyway, I've recently put in the papers to the Supreme Court summation from the lawyer for Eastern Health. And my own summation, and the reason why that I want to call witnesses to this hearing in the Supreme Court the uh, overall thing, as far as I'm concerned, is organized crime. And the people in Newfoundland, we've got maybe 1%, or less than 1% knows anything about the Compass Group, what's going on in our healthcare system, what is actually there. And what we actually got in reality, that is practicing, is an organization that is worse than communism. Because in communism, you've got a bunch of people, leaders, given uh, work and contracts to their buddies and friends. Here, we've got the Compass Group hired by government, by uh, Eastern Health, to spend our money, and they're giving it all to their own companies. So, in a way, this is, this is like you said, much worse than communism because they're giving it away to contractors for kickbacks. But in our government here now, what we got in this privatization of Eastern Health is that we got a contract, private contractor, holding government positions that are giving all the contracts to their own companies. Nobody else can get a bid in. Nobody else can do anything. It's at five and six times the going rates when they get these contracts. If somebody grumbles about it, they just buy them off. And if you got to say four times what it's worth, so somebody grumbles about it, and you got to give them a quarter. They still got three times the worth of the contract as as overall profit. And what's going on in Newfoundland now? We've got a billion dollars of our healthcare dollars gone out of the country, and people don't realize it. And I wonder why we don't have good hospital care and all the rest of it. Why we got people dying waiting for treatments and all this stuff? As far as I'm concerned, it equals murder. If you got money there that is meant for the protection of people, give services and life-threatening uh, illnesses and that and whatever, and you're taking it away from them, I mean, say, to me, that's the, the same thing as if you wouldn't take a gun and shoot them. But here in Newfoundland, people are not interested into it. They're going along with organized crime. They don't care. And uh, the attitude of all of this is just, amazing to me but 
Look, it's here. It's a reality. And if we don't do something about it, I've got it brought to the Supreme Court. I'm all alone on this. I can't get anybody to, to uh, help me out. And I don't really know what I'm doing in, when it comes to Supreme Court and that, whatever. Mike, what exactly are you bringing to the Supreme Court? We don't have a whole lot of time here. We understand your concerns, and they're justifiable, uh, justified regarding Compass Group. But what exactly are you saying or trying to say to the Supreme Court? To get all of the contracts involving Eastern Health and all their companies made public so that we know what we're dealing with. This is our money. And right now, Eastern Health are doing whatever they can to keep these these contracts secret and confidential that involves our money that we need for our health care system badly. But instead of that, they're giving raises and increases and everything every year to this foreign country, uh, well, international company, that is basically organized crime. And I think you should probably be careful with that kind of utterance. I hate for you to get yourself in trouble on this program. Uh, with that kind of stuff, but uh, anyway, I suppose you'll put yourself in whatever level of jeopardy you're comfortable with. But I'll give you 30 seconds, Mike, before I have to get to the news. Do you have um, any legal support? Do you have a lawyer? I, no, I can't get one. They all come up with different reasons why they can't. Either uh, somebody in their offices was already dealing with Eastern Health, conflict of interest, yeah. or take too long, or a list of stories that nobody wants to touch it because... The Compass Group are so large, 500,000 employees, 28 billion pounds a year in revenue. They can buy and sell this province and spit it out, pass it, pass it on for nothing. They, they wouldn't miss Newfoundland. Has the Supreme Court accepted this case? Oh, yes. It's going to court. This is the preliminary, so we're going to court. When is that? Uh, sometime in February. I'm not sure on the exact date now. i got to double-check it. Okay. Uh, keep the emails coming, Mike. I have to get to the news break, but thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep. All right. Uh, how are we doing out there this morning? David Williams? Oh, he's on the phone. Hopefully that's a good sign. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hi, Mr. Daly. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks. Call me Patty. I um, have a concern of the facility at the Comfort Inn for the people uh, that are on the street. I don't think it's appropriate. Um, I think the appropriate facility perhaps would be probably the Waterford Hospital and the programming probably would have been set out to their needs. So I'm sorry, what exactly is your worry? Because if they're talking about the presence of addictions treatment services right there on site, what would the concern be? I'm sorry, just trying to understand. Okay, well, the comfort in, they're saying that it's going to hold 140 people. And for the daily living skills, uh, I don't think it's appropriate program to have it in a in a hotel. I think the facility of the Waterford Hospital, because they have proper staff, uh, they have floors for people that uh, have different issues, and having it in a hotel, I think it's not appropriate. 
The plan is to have those types of supports, mental health and addiction services, general uh, physical health uh, attendees, whether that be nurse practitioners, doctors or otherwise. We don't really know the makeup of those care teams. And it's an important question to have answers to because if it's not going to have that type of staff, then basically we're just putting them in what, what might be turned into an emergency shelter. So without those supports, you're right. Exactly. My point. Uh, for the uh, proper staffing, the proper um, life skills program, uh, the program itself should be uh, outlined and um, basically to their needs. Yeah, I'm not even sure that there's been a carefully crafted, detailed plan here as of yet. We spoke with Doug Pawson this morning, who's actually on the task force. They're still working on some of these issues regarding criteria for eligibility, the exact makeup of some of these care teams. So those are details that we're going to actively try to get before anyone knows whether or not this is a good thing, a bad thing, indifferent, or, you know, going half-cocked. But I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic here that they're going to do do this the right way because I think the important reference here is not that it's simply going to operate as a hotel but it's in the form of a transition opportunity so to get some help the transitional um, for those people um, and I'm sure there's many issues and different issues in concern of those people um, in saying that um, to house 140 people with different um, issues uh, that's a concern. And uh, also, uh, with the new building being uh, built as we speak, uh, to transition them into a facility, which is uh, the Waterford Hospital, I was, you know, transforming into this new facility. And it's going to take time. It's not going to take overnight for them to get better. No, of course not. And so to have proper staffing and the programming itself, for the individual needs, and uh, that's a concern. And I empathize with these people. Uh, The facility apparently is not going to be ready until March, I think. Yeah, they're they're not even shutting down current operations until the 15th of February. Yes, okay. So that's a long way to facilitate 140 people. But I think that also gives them time to craft the plan, detailed plan. But your concern, wouldn't it be the exact same thing if you have 140 people with 140 different, albeit similar needs and or issues that need to be helped? Wouldn't that be the case if they were at the Waterford, the Health Sciences, St. Clair's, or at the Comfort Inn or wherever else? No, I think the what I'm concerned about is staff, the proper programming for the individual needs, and uh, I sympathize with these people. Uh, they have um, great concerns of the ind- individual person. And uh, to facilitate, uh, I, I would think, and this is my opinion, obviously, and uh, I think the Waterford Hospital uh, would be accommodated for their needs of concern. And that's, that's my final answer and i thank you very much for listening to me and uh, have a nice day mr the same to you thanks for the call thank you so much take care bye-bye you too as well bye-bye so i mean i understand a concern because 
unless all of the programming and staffing is in place, then it will not be in the form of a transition opportunity. It will simply be housing them in and out of the elements. Now, when folks who have been more involved in this conversation than I have, because I'm not involved at all, we just try to dissect and disseminate the information we get. We try to ask the questions, see if any of the gaps are still there and how they could be closed. So she's not wrong. Is you know, they talk about the importance of the wraparound service, and that's key. I mean, you simply talk about uh, a key to a door, open the door, there's a bed and a desk and a mini fridge. That's not necessarily all that people require. They need much more complicated wraparound harm reduction services. So if that's not absolutely in place when they open the door sometime in March to whoever's going to be an eligible resident of that, uh, the Comfort Inn, I think we should just move out to call it a, the transition home, then, of course, it's not going to be what it's been cracked up to be at this moment in time. Still, you know, you'll ask questions, and I'm glad we asked Doug Pawson this morning because he has been involved in these conversations. People were, you know, asking questions about proximity to amenities. You know, grocery store, for instance. And, of course, they have access to three meals a day inside the facility. Talk about access to pharmacy and proximity to, and those services will be offered inside the facility itself. And, yes, unless there's the required and adequate staffing programs and training and all the supports that are going to be needed, then it'll be going halfway. And halfway is nowhere near where we need to be. So, again, it's hard to know exactly where we are in crafting all of the supports and the detailed programs. I suppose at some time in the very near future, we're going to have to get the various ministers responsible on to talk about exactly that, help fill in some of the gaps to the questions being posed. Whether that be Paul Pike, or whether it be John Abbott, whether it be Tom Osborne, or the Premier himself, because those are important concerns. You know, you can add to it the concept of leasing versus purchasing. We don't even know if it was absolutely on the block to be sold, period. So that one is a, you know, it's when I highlighted it this morning, it's just simply not saying that, well, this is right and this is wrong. It's about contrasting strategies and, you know, looking at what's being done in other provinces in the form of their chosen best practices and what the outcomes are. You know, so it's not saying that BC got it right and we're, we're, we're on the wrong trail here. It's just that when you, you know, compare and contrast, it will come with potential different outcomes. It may indeed come with potential different price tags. And so that's what we're trying to do here is just paint the picture of here's some of the strategies, what's working, what's not, and what's not working, let's shelve it and try to change our focus, rejig our strategy, because it's in our collective best interest if this is helpful. If this puts people back in the, on the road to transitioning, to being better trained, employed, gainfully employed, off-income support, help with their addictions, help with their mental health concerns, help with their physical health, so that consequently the hope is that we'll have fewer and fewer people requiring this type of service. That's the goal. Not simply to get them in and out of the wind and the snow and the rain and the hail, right? It's got to be bigger than that. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How's it going? Doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Good. What a lovely day. Nice and calm out there. I'm looking forward to getting a walk in this afternoon. Yeah, I just did that myself. Uh, brought the dog out, and it's it's gorgeous. It's, an, it's nice to hear the snow crinkle under my feet. 100%. Uh, Although it's a bit icy. Certainly around our parking lot's a bit icy. But anyway, it is wintertime. Yeah, you got to be careful walking. Um, I just wanted to call in because, you know, I've been advocating for housing for a long time, uh, and I kind of wanted to just chime in about the uh government's uh the government's um announcement the other day um 
with the comfort hotel and what that means. And, um, you know, I think what you said just before the break there was, was spot on. Um, this is, there are gray areas. There's, there's things we've got to, we've got to work on and, and there's things that are, that seem very promising about this as well. Mark, um, if you don't mind, before we get into yeah. this particular project, I'd like to know more about what you saw over the holidays in Ontario. So, yeah. When we talk about those modified shipping containers, it's not ideal, but it's certainly better than some of the issues people are dealing with and options here today. So did they have those necessary harm reduction policies, wraparound services, or was it simply a place to call your own? Yeah, so I uh, so I grew up in Ontario, just outside of Cambridge, um, on a 45-acre farm there. We had sheep growing up, and... Um, my parents, both teachers, you know, I had lots of time outside. It was ideal. It just so happened that, uh, you know, I was able to, and of course, this is a huge interest of mine, and I've been advocating for these for for a long time. Um, now housing, which builds those modular structures used in Peterborough, um, in Waterloo, and also now uh, are being placed and almost uh, ready to go in London, Ontario, is in Cambridge. And I had been in touch with them. I've, you know, I've, I think November 28th is when I first asked for a quote for 50 units, um, just so we could add that to the discussion. And I was able to go down and visit the actual structure that we're currently fundraising for on our GoFundMe, which is called Bringing Down the House. Um, and uh, one of the folks from Now Housing brought me to Waterloo, and we toured around. And um, that was the Herb Street location. Later on, I went to the Better Tent City, which was actually the inspiration for modeling all of these things on all the, you know, the London, the Peterborough, and the Waterloo um, shelter. Um, it is. It does have wraparound supports. So in Waterloo, this is a region of Waterloo-run project. Um, it's operated by actually one of, I think, uh, Joe and Stephanie Mancini uh, are nonprofit shelter operators and. Um, they operate a, a kitchen as well. They were voted in as change makers uh, last year for Lou. I think it was last year. But they're very highly respected in, in the community for helping uh, the poor, helping people get into um, better situations in life through housing. And they operate that shelter. There's five people, five staff members on at all times. So three shifts a day. Um, there's one security guard. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, much, you know, like people are talking about the the Comfort Hotel being in the middle of nowhere. But this is this Herb Street location is also in the middle of nowhere. And that was somewhat intentional. Um, but, yes, there are th uh, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Um, they have primary health care. Uh, people come by. There's harm reduction um, on site. Staff are trained. Um each every single day, a pharmacist stops by the shelter, knocks on the knocks on the the little cabin that everybody lives in, and, and for those that need suboxone or uh, um, or methadone, that pharmacist delivers that directly to the person in in their home. Um, so yeah, there's there, there's a number there, there's a lot of wraparound services there in Waterloo. Also, there's something called Sanguine, which is a um, safer supply. So they'll test drugs and they'll provide pharmaceutical grade drugs, um, which, you know, we can have that discussion if that works or not. And, you know, it, it does in many places in this shelter uh, and in Waterloo and at the, or sorry, in Kitchener, the better tent city, 
it does appear to help quite a bit. Fair enough. And, you know, uh, again, one of the things that government generally does a pretty poor job at is setting some thresholds or milestones or boxes we can check to see whether or not we're on the right track. But, uh, you know, before I get too far ahead of myself or too far out over my skis, it'd be worth trying to get some answers to some of the obvious questions that people have been asking and I've been asking because, you know, this is important. You know, it's a bit of a change in strategy by government, which was required. Whether or not this is the right way or the wrong way, I'm going to reserve judgment for now. But the way we were dealing with transitional issues, the way we were dealing with shelters, private or public, was simply not working. It's as fundamental as that. So I've, you know, I guess proof will be in the pudding as to whether or not we're on the right track. I'd like to hope we are because this issue is not simply the impact that it has on the individuals who are going to need this facility. It's bigger than that. I, sometimes kind of mystified as to how some people can't wrap their mind around that because it comes with enormous cost getting housing right saves money if you're just all about dollars and cents and not really that concerned with folks who are addicted or homeless or what have you the fact of the matter is access to all the programs and services social services the healthcare system uh, possibility with uh, more interaction with the criminal justice system it comes with enormous cost societally and financially yeah, I mean, all you, all you have to do, like you've said on the program as well, I mean, all you have to do is look at Finland and what is the, what's the amount, I, I've heard you say it, that they're saving each year for each person. 15,000 euro. Yeah, so that's what, $32,000 each year uh, to actually just get somebody in a house, uh, low barrier, no, no qualms about if they're on drugs or not, um, no questions asked. What they did was they said we need to house people, and that's the first, that's the first spot where where we need to interact with folks and make sure that they're in a safe place with a roof over their head, and so they're saving money doing it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can mimic those savings necessarily to that extent because some of their services are even more costly than ours. So yeah. again, it might not be that big number, but it without question would come with the savings. And of course, as we have to continually say, it's not just a roof over your head. In Helsinki, which has been looked at as one of the very best practices in the housing world, we don't they don't have the laddered or staggered system. It's straight to permanent housing. It also comes with supports. Now, they have a much different issue when it comes to crime and addictions than we do here in Canada. Unfortunately, they just have a different mindset, you know, and a different approach to being healthy than we do have in this country. So they, they're starting at probably a better spot than we are, but we can learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, like, l- let's think of that as the basic, the starting point, get everybody into housing. And that's, that's what these protests, these 10 cities have been about here. You know, um, a better 10 city started four years ago. So like, we're, we're, we're just, we're just starting, um, you know, by the spring, I- I'm talking to, you know, folks in organizations and they're sort of, they're concerned that in the spring, this is going to explode. So we don't know the numbers of what this, uh, you know, this comfort hotel scenario project uh, solution is, is going to, you know, 140 rooms seem that now, but who knows? And, you know, Doug obviously <laughs> brought brought some of the, uh, the ideas of like a transition uh, in the housing system. And I think that that was a, that's a key point that people need to, to hear and understand that, you know, this could be this could represent all kinds of different avenues for people to access housing um so in that way i think it's really good um i think patty we we need we definitely need some more details 
And I guess uh, ultimately, like my issues that I've been sort of bringing up on Twitter and is that, you know, the negative aspects to this project is that the transparency has not been there. Um, you know, since what, December 1st, I think is we, when we first met with the task force and this was on the table. So like we talked about this. Now, there wasn't a direct mention of the Comfort Hotel, but the, there was a hotel option discussed. Um, and I think, you know, like we need to know transportation details, healthcare details. You know, are are they going to provide methadone and suboxone on site? Um, is there a safer supply or, or even a, a drug testing sort of aspect to this? Um, cause you know, drugs are going to be up there cause they're in every shelter. Um, the food costs, the, the, the food value. I mean, that's obviously a huge component of our existing shelter system. So what's going to happen there? Um, and, and I think lastly in, in that, you know, it, uh, the idea in that government press release, they said that they've had offered supportive housing to, you know, whether it's a shelter system, the emergency shelter system or, or something else, they said that they had offered that to everyone at Kent City. And I just cannot get my mind wrapped around what they mean there, because is a security guard a supportive uh, housing scenario? I, I don't think so. Well, a security guard is a necessary feature, though, I would suggest. You know, wraparound services, harm reduction and all the rest, there's still going to be time between looking for help, putting in the work, ha- having access to the help, because... There's still going to be some potential security concerns. There, there absolutely is. So even just the presence, like I say quite often, nothing slows you down like seeing a police cruiser. Well, nothing will maybe temper your emotions, you know, and I know we have complex needs at play here, but nothing might be able to temper your emotion quite like knowing that if you have to interact with a security guard, it might jeopardize your place inside this transition home. So, again, <clears throat> I'm reserving judgment. I think it's a step in the right direction, but we'll still fill in a bunch of the blanks as quickly as we can, and that's going to require those who are in the room and had the discussions and made the negotiations, and we'll see where we go. Yeah, there's no doubt a security is needed. I'm not questioning that at all. Um, I think, you know, when we, you know, and I hear on your show, you know, like we're, we're talking about 2041. We're talking, and we just, I just heard your caller talking about healthcare and agreements in healthcare, and I was going to the Supreme Court. So one one overarching thing that I, I wish we had that we could do better in this province is have a little bit more transparency. We obviously can't have that when we're negotiating contracts with you know a comfort hotel or whatever, but we need to we need to really discuss this stuff. So I, I'm I'm hoping that you know that there'll be a little bit more of that in the future. Um, you know, I've written it to John Abbott to say, you know, are, are Michelle and I going to be invited back to discuss things with task force? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that he agrees to that because I, th- I think that we bring in a different perspective. Um, a couple, uh, Patty, can I just go through a couple things? I just want to just very quickly. I'm a bit late for the news, but just quickly. Yeah. So Doug mentioned, um, you know, harm reduction, uh, will would be on site now. We harm, the harm reduction team is phenomenal and should be expanded. That, that's a that's that should be absolutely clear. But they don't dispense methadone. They don't dis, dispense suboxone. So that should be a component of this. And that's what I saw up in Ontario. And I think that you know people not having to spend hours on metro bus going to wherever to to get this stuff, which is a daily thing. Would, would improve their lives. The other thing that I did see up in Ontario, 
um, is with a better tent city. And you can see that right on my Twitter. I've got it pinned. There's a video. It talks about how it formed. There's a community. The community is, is uh, I, I would say the community is something that needs to be considered and the creation of community in all of these types of projects. And I think you see that in stuff like the, you know, the humanity project over in New Brunswick, um, you see a community develop. And that's what really, I feel like that really empowers people and allows them to create change. Um, lastly, the, the modular, the modular uh, initiatives that happened in Ontario, they started, you know, it was like the first discussion was September, 2022, um, and they were installed and in place and people were moving in by April 2023. So Doug had said, you know, that's a, maybe a more midterm or uh, I'm not sure if he said long term or not as well. But it, no, it's very short term. It's just we didn't react quickly enough. We could we could have had this in place by now if we had actually taken this crisis seriously. And, and, and the final thing I'll say is, you know, it is I do find it hard to take. Whether this is a, whether this is a good or a great project, or whether this is an okay project, um, the twenty point seven million dollars over three years, like for John Abbott as a, as the Minister of Infrastructure and Transportation, I mean, and to be sort of the government face on that task force, I'm kind of embarrassed for him to be, or to be disappointed, I guess, to like we're not going to have infrastructure after three years. It's just going to go back to a hotel. So we kind of need to create this stuff. Uh, you know, with a lasting, with 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 some sort of lasting impact, and I I think it would have been good if we could do this differently to ensure that that happens. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really dependent on whether or not there was a market opportunity to do it differently in so far as, you know, permanent infrastructure owned by the government because we bought it versus leased it. I don't know what the appetite was on either side of that negotiation, to be honest. Mark, wait for the news. Appreciate the time. I think, Patty, sorry, one one quick thing. Like, I I think that was part part of the five-point plan to use government buildings where impossible. You had Herb on your program. Herb called in and said, you know, ex-military, ex-RCMP, we want to get in there. We want to, we want, we're engineers. We want to, we want to retrofit a, a govern, an existing government building to do this. And, you know, we haven't heard much more from government on that. So the, the opportunity was there. Um, this is a much better idea than repurposing a building that is not conducive to having individual rooms, kitchen facilities, office facilities, room for clinics, room for the pharmacy. I mean, this sounds like a much better idea than pretending that we could repurpose another building that is, you know, fallen into desperate disrepair and would need a huge amount of work to make it look like what the Comfort Inn would. And I'm just saying the government needs to keep things more transparent so that we as taxpayers know what's going on and we also can create the community to to help these people in the best possible way thanks for the time mark thanks patty take care bye-bye all right uh there we go Time for the news break, but there's still plenty of time to get you on the show to talk about whatever's on your mind. There's been a lot of talk about housing today, but we can talk about industry, whether it be the fishery or anything under the sun. If you're in the St. John's metro region... Had cleared my throat. If you're in the St. Charles metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. So the lead news story given by Brian Mador just then was the call we had with Rod Pike, who's the chair of Newfoundland Labrador Crime Stoppers. And the conversation this morning was about illegal contraband tobacco. So, and like Mr. Pike said, he doesn't know if that call this morning is going to change anyone's attitude towards wanting to save money by buying this illegal tobacco. But the point that he was trying to drive home is that the money is being used to fuel organized crime. And I think the number he used was they can make more money off illegal tobacco, some eight times more than trafficking in cocaine. Pretty remarkable stuff. I'm not surprised, and the couple of emails I got immediately on the heels of the call was that, you know, I'm looking out for number one. If I'm going to be able to save money, I'm going to do exactly that. Okay, I mean, you'll do as you see fit, right? But your savings comes with an enormous cost to everyone else. The presence and prevalence of organized crime in the, our communities is just staggering. I mean, look at the fact that we've actually got an RNC, RCMP, Organized Crime Task Force on the West Coast. We know that the responsibility for the amount of drugs on the street, illegal tobacco, human trafficking, uh, and everything else under the sun in the world, guns, in large part, that's organized crime. You know, we may indeed have some pretend gangsters around here who are driving some of that bus, but some of their contacts on the mainland are absolutely members of organized crime syndicates. So you'll do as you see fit. You'll go ahead and buy the uh, illegal contraband if that's what you so choose. But I guess, you know, the consideration that Mr. Pike was offering is that understanding what that means for the community and public safety and the presence and prominence and prevalence of drugs and guns and what that means for our collective best interests, I guess it's just he put it out there for your consideration. But I'm not surprised. He immediately got two emails right at the end of that call saying, I'm going to keep buying the illegal uh, tobacco. Fair enough. Also, some questions, you know, that are being added to the pile regarding some of the transition housing issue. One question posed by a listener via email is, will there be children staying at this facility? I don't know. I mean, we do know that some homeless people do indeed have dependent children. You know, by and large, they end up in uh, the hands of provincial care. So... I don't know if that changes with these rooms being offered up there. I really have no earthly idea, but it's a good question. I'll just add it to the pile uh, of questions that we have for those responsible. A couple of specific ministers. Also, the whole conversation that was instigated by the, or started by the Newfoundland Labrador Dental Association regarding Canada's dental plan. This is a careful consideration that has to be better understood here. I mean, because the government has not been driving the bus about understanding the age of the healthcare professionals in the world of dentistry, you know, so they've been, you know, recruiting a variety of other disciplines, but not talking about that world because it's not really their dimension. You know, dentists, they train on their own accord in dental schools around the country. They set up their own private businesses, and there is some billing to private insurance, what have you. Of course there is. But I've never heard the government mention not one single time, not federally or provincially, about the numbers of people set to retire inside the world of dentistry. It's going to be fine if you're going to be eligible. And el eligibility is $90,000 of net family income, uh, and you, you're eligible for the plan. If you make $70,000 or less in the net family income, you don't have to pay the copay and that's fine but if we have i don't know let's see get the numbers here once again coming from the association itself and this is the president dr shane roberts they estimate by the end of 24 to uh, some ninety-seven thousand people could be eligible for the program in the first phase of the rollout here that's great 
you might be eligible, but it's the opportunity to get into a dentist's office. You know, because time is of the essence when it comes to our health. And yes, your dental health has a direct impact on your overall health. But those are some legitimate concerns being brought forward by dentists right across the country. When I read that story, I googled it up in different provinces. They've got the exact same concerns. In addition to that, we know that whether it be for your own family doctor or other collaborative care clinics, there is massive amounts of administration. So at the exact same time while this plan is being rolled out, and it will have a significant what they're calling burden on administrative uh, services inside their clinics, they say that it's being created to mimic what is called the non-insured health benefits for First Nations Inuit, which at this apparently, they say, not only the administrative, administrative burden, pardon me, but it has its own fee schedule, and it's not one set by the dentists themselves. So they apparently are being asked to subsidize that program, and now talk about the fact that in addition to that program there's some nine million canadians that will be eligible for the canadian dental plan we'll we've got ourselves a bit of a problem brewing here it like many things announced by government it sounds good it feels good you know more canadians getting the help they need uh, regarding their dental health care but is it actually going to be is it going to be able to function the way that it was announced and intended to still a looming question that we're going to have to get answers to so that one on the shelter whether or not to be children i'll try to find out because i honestly god i don't know and whether it comes to the dental association maybe we should invite dr roberts on if he can make time during his busy day to uh, offer us a bit more elaboration on the concerns that they have and what the administrative burden looks like let's take our final break of the morning when we come back plenty of time for you don't go away Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, line number one. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? That's, that's good. Patty, I uh, listen to your show quite often. I find it very informative. And I'd just like to say thank you for everything that you do for our province because without you guys, we'd be left in the dark in a lot of, lot of different things. Listen to your caller there this morning talking about the contraband and about what it does to our communities and, and, and what it puts money-wise and where it goes. You know, Paddy, our government did a great thing a few years ago to legalize marijuana. I don't smoke marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana. But but they they did it, and they, they our government actually did something right. They got it right, and and, and they brought the, you know, they, they just did it right. Sometimes if you make it easy for people to do the right thing, the most times people will do the right thing. But Patty, if our government, if our government truly cares about, you know, contraband and about where the money goes and where the dollars go, if our government made it affordable for people to do the right thing, then I think people would do the right thing. I'm a smoker, and I, I find it's it's an addiction. It's an addiction, and I'm paying twenty one dollars for one package of cigarettes. That's what a pack of smokes cost me. That's like 150 so, bucks a carton or something these days, isn't it? Or more? It's 200. It's 200. Jeez, right? And there's people, there's people, and I know we got bigger problems in our society. You know, people can't afford heat. They can't afford groceries. But, like, smoking is an addiction, and sometimes, sometimes, like, that'll help with cravings of other addictions just to have a smoke. And, you know, I guess, I don't know, I say calm your nerves might be the right phrase for it. But... If 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 we can buy them on the street for five dollars, like shouldn't shouldn't our government be able to get them to us? And I understand the tax dollars and the infrastructure and where the money goes, but if you really want to make it about 
keeping our community safe and, and not having all this money for other bad things that are going on in the world, why don't they help us? Do the right thing. You know, and the right thing on this front is, remember, there was plenty of conversations about the government funding smoking cessation tools, which yeah. is also a pretty helpful idea. But at that time, now, of course, they were talking about simply helping folks who are lower middle income with those potential free cessation tools, when in fact that the health care system doesn't know if you're rich or poor if you've got lung cancer. So it was probably yeah. a good idea for everybody. Interesting point you make. Like, for hey, instance, I probably... Sh- what? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I probably should have asked Rod Pike this uh, very specific question. I don't know if he's got the answer, but how much are people paying for a uh, package of contraband cigarettes? I really don't know what the answer to that is. Well, I'm paying 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 nearly $21 a package for what we call tailor-made. Yeah, that's right. And and, and I know know you can get the contraband on the street for $5. Okay. Now, Patty, Patty, I've tried quitting. I've, I've... I, I at one point I had nine months under my belt where I hadn't smoked, and then, and I'm not using excuses. We all got excuses for whatever. But but when COVID hit, I found that with the uncertainty that was going on in the world, and I didn't know I was going to be able to support my family and pay my mortgage and my groceries, I I my I just and and again I I hate to use like my nerves got bad. That's 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 unfair to people. That's unfair to people who actually had mental mental issues. I, I I found that 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 was the way that I dealt with what was going on today in the world, and I can't imagine what I would have turned to if if I didn't feel that that craving or that addiction or whatever you want to call it. But like just just make it so that the poor person can afford and make it easy for us to do the right thing. Is all I'm trying to say. And most times, most times. If you make it, if you make it easy for people to do the right thing, I think more times than not, you'll find people to do the right thing. Let's not make it about. Let's not. Let's not have the community now turn on one another and say, "Oh, you're buying then, so now you're contributing to gang violence and drugs and oh, what's wrong?" And don't, don't, don't put it, don't put it on the back of the poor person which we always so often do. Yeah, I think he was just trying to draw the line between I, the two. Yeah, no, I get, I, I get it, I get it, and I never ever thought I'd in an open line and voice my opinion because I got, I got bigger fish to fry. Trust me, but I just want the people to know that, you know, our government should help us do the right thing. Because not everybody can afford to go to a convenience store. And he said about the mom pas, there are no more mom pa businesses in our communities. The big guys got them all. The big guys got them all bought up, and the big guys are the ones making the big bucks. Just like the Loblaws and the Sobies of the world, so don't don't you know don't don't pull on the heartstrings of the Mom Paws because the Mom Paws little convenience stores they don't exist anymore. We got a couple, we got a couple, but not not very. Is the big guy, the rich get rich and the poor stay poorer. There's a lot to that. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show, even though you got bigger I, fish to fry. You fried this one. I appreciate you taking my call. Anytime. All the best. Bye. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Tax on cigarettes is pretty big. If I remember the numbers correctly, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 33, 34 cents per cigarette is tax. 
So that adds up pretty big. So these numbers come from uh, a group that you know evaluates uh, tax implications on a bunch of different products, and including what we call the sin tax for cigarettes and alcohol, what have you. So it just popped up here. It said, the headline, taxes on cigarettes in Canadian jurisdictions. The price of an average pack of cigarettes in Canadian provinces is January the 1st of 2024. It includes federal and provincial excise tax, GST, PST, and HST, assuming wholesale price of $4.41 and a 10% retail markup. So there you go. There's the wholesale price for the cigarettes, then add in the 10% retail, and then add in all the various taxes. So that's a pretty good uh, number for context. So if they're able to sell the contraband for five bucks, now the government is never going to make it uh, competitive on that front to that extent, but apparently average price, $4.41 on the wholesale market, then you add the 10%. And so that adds up to an average price here in this province of $17.81. Let me see if I can eyeball across the country if we're not indeed the highest, and of course we are. So in Nova Scotia, $17.05. In PEI, $17.05. New Brunswick, $16.04, and vastly cheaper in parts of central Canada. $13.12 in Quebec, uh, $14.01 in Ontario, and then it fluctuates in and around the 16s and uh, low 17s for the rest of the country. So governments have long relied on it. The Canadian Cancer Society and ACT and other groups like that, they're all in favor because price point is one of the pressures where people may indeed say, not only do I understand the health implications for what I'm doing, but I can't afford it anymore. So now I'll try to kick the habit. Now I'll try to quit. That's the thought anyway. But of course, I think it just pops in my mind because I'm doing this on the fly. <clears throat> Other taxes that have been applied, trying to encourage people to make better choices, you know, the, the sugar tax comes to mind. And in fact, when the government thought that they predicted maybe some $9 million in revenue, and they came in, I think, at 12 last year, last fiscal year, that meant, quite clearly that people weren't changing their tune because the amount of tax paid on the additional, you know, full-leaded Pepsi or whatever your favorite soft drink is, people obviously weren't going to play along as government thought they might because they created even more revenue than they thought they would. So there's a bunch of different things here uh, to consider. But in the world of smoking, you know, the caller's right. It's an addictive property. Nicotine is highly addictive and it's highly deadly. So if we're going to try to do better by people, I think to use his words, is if they made it easier and more accessible and maybe cost-free to get on some of these smoking cessation tools, that might be a good idea. The government talked about it a few years ago. Nothing ever came of it, but it was absolutely part of the, uh, the public conversation at that moment in time. Okay, final check-in this morning on the Twitter box. We're VOC Mobile Line. Follow us there. Offer your commentary and or suggestions for content or specific guests that you'd like to hear from. We'll do our best to accommodate. Email address is openlinefeocm.com. And just one more reminder. I try to reply to as many as humanly possible in the run of a day. If you don't hear from me in short order, I'll try to get to it as best I can. And final reminder, some people try to send me a text to my email address. I simply can't respond. So if you're someone who's done that, I would like to get back to you, especially if you're asking a question of me. So please consider using your email address to send it to my email address, which is openlinefeocm.com. All right, good show. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.